Hello and welcome to episode 225 of the Crate and Crowbar. It's the 7th of February 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and I'm proud to welcome you to a disruptive games industry roundtable brain clash starring Tom Senior. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Good evening. Good evening. That's not the kind of energy we want here. I do, oh, it's too much humility. <laughs> you got to really lean in. Lean in. Hi. Good. That's good. I could feel the capitalization. <laughs> Tom, would you like to re attempt your end? Uh, yours was pretty upbeat. I was actually okay with that. Yeah. High energy, ready to disrupt. Ready okay. To, you know, God, take you all apart. He's in the and corner. Together, and everything's getting disrupted over there. Yeah. I know. It's just, uh, there's a certain, when you're in the room, Alex, I always feel this. Um, <laughs> my clothes, my, yeah. my foot that's near him. It's an being, energy <laughs> field. It's like it's being flayed by his disruption. Mm, this disruptive bubble, you might call it, like a force field. Anyway, what are we talking about? Computer games. I like computer games. Good. That's it for this month. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, so uh, we're going to do one bit of news, which is good news. And the good news is that Into the Breach has a release date. It's wonderful news. And that release date is the 27th of February, the month that this is, this year. That's only... How long has it been in development? It's a while. I think... So FTL came out in two nine, 2000 and... 11? 11 or 12 i think it was 11 late 2011, i think <laughs> wow i wrote I it down it in an article <laughs> fairly recently but okay since but then then they made the uh special edition or the adv- advanced or the extended mm. edition yes released it on ipad so they I, I spoke to them a few weeks ago and they said that no 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 we haven't been working on it for se- for seven years <laughs> it hasn't been that long because they only finished working on on FTL finally in, in 2013-14 right so it's a four-ish year turnaround that's possibly uh the least exciting thing about the fact that it's finally coming out exactly I thought I'd start <laughs> yeah we can ramp up um, uh, it's called pacing Chris oh I see right <laughs> see that's not I mean that's how you disrupt things you don't walk in and say politely. Oh, you go with the big thing first. Yeah, punch in. What, what is the big thing about Into the Breach? What is Into the Breach? Mechs. <laughs> Mechs are big. Mechs are big. Mechs are real big. Mechs are real big. It's a puzzle game, isn't it, Chris? Yes, it is. It's a strategic have you, puzzle have you game. Been playing it? Have you been playing it? I've, I've, the, the only person I know in the entire games journalist circle that has, has not played it. I haven't played it. I, so I, I, I mean, I'm not the only person at all. Uh, Chris is <laughs> You two me haven't there. played it? <laughs> yeah. You Alex, this is why journalists. I need you here. I need you, I need you for other things other than how long did this take? <laughs> so I tell you what, it's wonderful. Um, uh, Tom Francis absolutely loves it as mm. well. Um, it is a turn-based strategy. Um, it takes on a few little ideas from FTL, but mostly it's, ex- it's very much his own game. You play little randomly generated levels. Um, you are three, t- three mechs, um, against bugs that, mm. uh, raise themselves out of the ground. And your object is to stop the bugs from destroying cities and in the, um, in the levels. Uh, um, for every city they, they destroy, um, the, the 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 closer the world comes to disaster and the end of the game. Mm. Um, so, but you'd also have sub objectives uh, where you've got to save little uh, missile launchers, or you might have uh, special environmental effects happening. So there might be a flooding level where a line of um, tiles, because it's um, it's on a grid, a line of tiles is flooded every turn, making the play space smaller. You don't actually die when you go in the water, but you can't fire your weapons. So, um, so it, it, 
constantly changing the um the the, the strategy um each of your mechs has very different capabilities so some of them one of them is a melee one well there are lots of loadouts there are different um teams of mechs that have very different sort of styles to them but the the vanilla the first set you have a um a mech which does melee pretty hard punch that pushes um an enemy back there's a artillery one that has really high range and also um has the effect of pushing uh mech any mech or any any unit which is um an adjacent square and there is a tank which also pushes but um the cool thing about it again this pacing i started with the mm. slight slow and we're waking up mm. the cool thing mm. about it is that um it's totally deterministic like mm. on your turn you get to see exactly what the 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 enemy is going to be doing on its turn so you can see what it's going to attack that you can see the the ranged little insect which is going to destroy a city uh and you can deflect those attacks you can either destroy it but more more often you're not going to be able to destroy it on that turn or during your turn but you can move it to a new position and therefore when it makes its attack it'll kind of hopefully hit somewhere that's kind of you know not going to less affect. important exactly so you're kind of constantly weighing up kind of cause and effect and kind of weighing up damaging your mech instead of a city or taking a city being dam- damaged in the interest of getting something else like and there's is like there is so many you know you'll spend 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes considering a move and then going back and trying again and thinking about it because there are so many permutations of choices it's, mm. it is wonderful and it's um and it's all kind of uh strung together with this kind of almost kind of xcomy kind of over sort of what would you call it strategy level where you're it's not it's macro very light actually scale macro, macro thing where you're choosing where you're choosing areas that you're going to be having you know mm. playing your levels it is a fine fine game i it's it's so much up my alley that um the only reason i haven't played it is just a lack of access i'm really yeah. really looking forward to it in fact i sort of put it from my mind because the fact that it had no release date made it didn't want to just get excited <laughs> about yeah. it in abstract but now that it's actually three weeks away i can be ex- excited about it for in actuality imagine imagine that's it yeah that's the coldest i'm capable of it's kind of it's a survival scenario thing isn't it so you've got like four turns to simply protect your cities it's not about wiping out all of the aliens as, as far yeah as I so like yeah sort of like the base level you're surviving the those five rounds right um but you'll have often have sub sub objectives so mm. you will uh, be awarded some more energy for your city you know for your kind of energy grid it's called which is this sort of you know overall def- you know the, the the thing that if it ticks down you'll 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 die um or you know the game will be over uh you might if you've if you kill all of the enemies for instance might be one of the one of the sub objectives and you'll get an award for that hmm. uh, you can fail a level and it won't be game over it'll just mean that you've lost a chunk of you know so has it solved the so the xcom problem i would define as as soon as something goes even slightly wrong it's so much better to save scum and in some cases it's so much better to restart the campaign is that no saves coming for you chris uh there's there's no save um the one this is the one thing (laughs) well there's there is a save there is a save you can't you can't go back to a save it auto saves between each round i I think you can quit in the middle of a you you can quit in the middle of a of a level as well but you can't go back like Mm. you're always going forwards Mm. um i think that uh no, it's, it's kind of, you know, you, I have found myself in situations where I just don't like my 
my kind of prognosis and therefore I'll just sort of take the hit and die. But there's an extra mechanic in it where your pilots um, of the mechs are are um, leveling up as you play mm. and they're, they're getting awarded XP. And when you die, you get to take one of your pilots back with you. It's like a the scenario is that you've got some sort of time machine, you know, oh, and you're going back to the, like when you die, you're going back to the start of the invasion. You can see, you're seeing whether you can do it all over again. Mm. So you, you can take one of your pilots back um, with you at the end of that campaign. So you start with a good <laughs> pilot and then two kind of um, new ones. I like the idea that you start with one pilot who has real lived experience of failing like <laughs> it's a yeah. very depressed like every depressed yeah. person like I, I was thinking of like bad universe Riker like, yeah. like, like it's all I've seen how badly wrong this can go <laughs> like, I don't want to do this again why did you take me um the one the one thing about it that I would I'm I'm still not totally sure about I know that Tom Francis isn't as well is the way that it deals with being able to undo moves it's a little bit funny and i can see why but i don't know whether it works totally for me where um you only commit to decisions over choices over where you move your your mechs and kind of and what sort of fire you do when you make an attack so you can Mm. move your mechs around um and then you can undo any of those moves but once you made that first uh attack um then that's locked in and you can't go back again. Well, except you can, but once in each, uh, one, once in each kind of, um, level, mm. you can, un- you can go, you can undo an entire turn's moves if you've made a silly mistake. Right. So, but you can only do that once in an entire battle. So sort of like you have to get used to sort of like, oh, you move stuff around and then you kind of think, oh, am I ready to commit to this? And it's a bit funny. I don't mm. know why you just can't just sort of just undo back all the way you can you know to the start of the round i'm not sure but um but it's a decision i think they wanted tension they wanted you to feel every move that you make has weight to it Mm. like you are committing to something that there Mm. is importance behind it and that's cool it certainly works you feel there's consequence Hmm. good stuff i'm really excited i'm really excited about it yeah well i imagine we'll talk about it a lot more when it's out and we've all had a chance to to dig in dig in to the breach (laughs) Tactical breach wizards. Mm, indeed. A coincidence, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, we should mention that Tom has announced what he's working on. Um, this is, uh, maybe a strange thing to announce on the pod because, uh, it kind of wasn't news for us because we had been sat over Tom's shoulders. He, uh, made wizards fight immunity. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you're interested, I think Tom has registered and got running, uh, wizards.cool. As the URL for um, the project he's currently working on, uh, Tactical Breach Wizards, which is a game about breaching and entering and clearing rooms as a spec ops team of wizards, uh, which uh, people who've been listening to this pod for a long time, which I think will remember most uh, hearted life as a PC gamer podcast gag about five years ago so there's a beautiful journey yeah i don't know who first said that but I, I love we actually tried to figure thing. this out oh, right. we actually you can, genuinely you've got all the archives you can go into well so t- this, this legit happened right like we had the conversation about like you know because um, um tom did the right thing which is like email around like does anyone mind if i actually make this and obviously no one did um but we couldn't figure out where it originally started and um i even asked uh uh living uh Creighton crowbar wiki 
and uh, pod expert Kane, member of our Discord community, do you remember which episode it was? Because I think he was doing a re-listen of the original Peter Gale pod at the time. And apparently that joke just emerged fully formed. Like, <laughs> as, as some, out of some kind of, like, collective uh, tack ops wizard kind of thing. I think id. it's something that lurks within everybody because I know, because mm. when um, Tom uh, announced it on Twitter, mm. sort of, just like, boom and everyone went that's the best idea ever yeah. as if it was so, always been under the surface and i think i think what it is actually i was trying to i was genuinely trying to pin this down i mm. think i think it was a joke that we basically just about made we used to record the pc gamer podcast in one of the other offices that our employer had in, in bath and we would always have to walk there and to and from where our actual office was and it was like a five minute walk and i remember really vividly and this will have been 2012 ish i think walking back with uh tom and rich mccormick and a few other people and us all like bouncing that idea off each other and so i think its actual origin was the walk back from the podcast <laughs> circa that era um because it was bouncing off against the, another idea which was a like Call of Duty style kind of mill military special operatives kind of game, but where all of the lingo is literally true. So like there were some tangos and then like, you know, like Grizzly Papa was like just a big bear dad that would come in and it was also a helicopter. Like in this kind of, <laughs> like, um, which that idea is a little bit more avant-garde. Um, <laughs> everybody, you're going to be fighting a bunch of cans of, yeah, exactly. Obscure <laughs> IGF entry still to come. <laughs> yes, but, exactly. So um, yeah, a lot of bandits, you know what I mean? Just like old timey kind of pistoliers, um, <laughs> high women, you might say. Yeah, um, that is a dumb idea as well. Basically, we had a lot of stupid ideas, but this one's actually seen the light of day as a game, so that's very exciting. And the art is by uh, John Roberts, who... Erstwhile. 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 Our, our regular podcast, John, who um, who uh, did the art for Gunpoint and Heatsick as well, and is now doing some rad wizard picks. Yeah. Dot biz, which Shoulder is the alternate board. URL that could have gone before, but didn't. Um, so that's cool. I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, what have you guys been playing? Ooh, we've been playing Tom and Tom and I have been playing the same game. The game, the game of the moment, mm. which is not out yet on PC and tragically won't be out until the autumn. But, but it is. But you can just slaver. You can just slaver until that moment. We've made an executive pod decision that we can talk about Monster Hunter, which is what we're about to talk about because yes. it is coming out on PC later in the year, and it is probably the most interesting game that's out at the moment. Question oh, mark. Let's say this year. So okay. <laughs> That's the kind of disruptive, um, like possibly not back upable sentiment. Oh, I no, no, wanted. it's all right. Cause I only, I only, uh, committed us to, uh, January's releases. Okay. Yes, that's true. <laughs> no worries then. Sub, uh, actually, Subnautica, <laughs> I'd say. I'd say it has to fight Subnautica for. That's true. What's oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's only, a, that's, that's been out for ages. Doesn't count. Okay, fine. Monster Hunter <laughs> Ultimate World, Monster Hunter World, Monster Hunter World, Monster Hunter World. Just World. Okay, it's bloody marvelous. Which mm. is uh, it's only the second one I played. I played um, yeah, which one did you play? One of the 3DS ones. Uh, I don't know if there were even more than one. There were. There was two. There was four. The you first and one, Generation. I oh, I can't remember. I think it was the first one I played. Um, so I discovered my charge axe and my charge blade. Even uh, so, Monster Hunter. For, if you're not familiar with the series, is as you might expect um, a sort of open world game about hunting giant monsters with absurd, incredibly complex, deep weapons, um, and then wearing their spines and their arms and also just bits of their skin on yourself as you gradually craft yourself into the monsters. And then wearing that monster, you can fight other monsters that, you know, you, then you wear them. And it's basically just like Hoke, Hoke Couture, but 
but with just grisly remains of things that you slaughtered. Exactly. Uh, and the, the the monsters themselves are, are these extraordinary, enormous, characterful beasts that roam around these sort of open world zones, uh, changing behaviors as, as they get wounded or furious or tired. Uh, as you slowly hack them down to their limping final state, you, you know you feel a, a mix of awe and sorrow as you finally land. <laughs> sorrow, a, a, no sorrow, <laughs> not for Alex. Hunter never sorrows. A critical hit on the the, the, the thing's head, and it just. <laughs> flumps down like a sack of potatoes and then you spend 30 seconds knifing its insides out and just seeing little loot markers appear at the side <laughs> of the screen each one delivering a dopamine hit directly to your brain and you're actually kind of like buried in the flesh as well like you are slipping right into this fast body <laughs> ah it's See, a beautiful thing i was gonna ask so maybe don't where we start on picking this game but like so i haven't played it um and but i've watched a, like i've seen a lot of clips and things pop up on youtube and and people's various feeds and so on. And uh, it makes me quite sad when the dinosaur dies. Hmm. When you see it kind of go and fall over. And and when they try and run as well. Like any any yeah. any monster or creature in a game that tries to flee before it dies instantly gains a certain amount of pathos, right? Like, so, it's like hmm. I don't want it. As soon as it doesn't want to die, your active decision to kill it is harder to make. That's my supposition. They're bastards. Okay, they're bastards. <laughs> Why isn't it called Bastard Hunter then? <laughs> like... So the, the, the yeah, I mean, the, they're kind of, I think they're the, one of the first kind of video game enemies that I, because I started playing it on PSP in 2000, late 2000s. Mm. Um, and it was the first kind of big, like, video game enemy that kind of seemed to have an existence outside of the, you know, because mm. it would... You, you, in those days, you would start the game. You'd go into this kind of area, except for that it was divided in by by there were small arenas, and then you'd have to go into a loading screen into the next and sort of thing, and they all kind of network together. Mm. And you'd have to find this fucking thing. So, like that was the first thing. So you, I always generally felt a little bit angry with the dinosaur, you know, with the with the monster at that point as you were trying to locate them, having the nerve to wander around yeah. on its own, having and its they life. Do, yeah, they'll move around, so they might be in here, might be there. Mm. After you see them. You, after you start fighting them, they'll, they'll run off after a point. Mm. And it's, it's kind of interesting that it's not, it doesn't really feel like it's flying off. You're more, it's more of a kind of like, oh, go away. It's like, I'm like if you're not going to leave me alone, I'm just going to go, you know. Mm. Uh, so then you've got to chase after it. In the old days, that would meant a lot more searching. In this one, it's got some, there are loads of things. If you've played uh, Once Hunter before, mm. um, there are loads of quality life kind of, it's a terrible phrase. I really hate the word phrase quality of life. And I just used it. Mm, there are loads right. of, it's as if, it's as if games are really annoying <laughs> and therefore they need to have wonderful design to stop them from being annoying. They kind of are though all the time, but like, yeah. <laughs> well, especially with Monster Hunter is a great example. Like you used to have to, f- when you saw a monster in order to track it on the map, you had to fire a paintball at yeah. it, a magic paintball, and then suddenly you'd be able to see it on the map. Yeah. And <clears> the paintball <throat> you had to craft out of things. So you'd then yeah. have to have gone, gone into the maps and, and found flowers and sort of mud and stuff to make into paintballs. That's really annoying, Alex. That's really annoying. So my life, the quality of my life has been improved during the time it of playing true. the game. It is true. I, don't, I understand what I you I definitely mean, understand what it's referring to because it's like games obviously are about like usually solving a problem or overcoming a challenge and that's annoying, right? Like in most <laughs> contexts in real life, you don't want to have to overcome a challenge because unless you've said it for yourself in some way, i.e. through a game I think it's when a developer says it or a publisher that's yeah. saying, oh, we've, we've got, in the, in the sequel, we've got some, lots of quality of life uh, improvements. Yeah, so they were your fault. Yeah. They were yeah. your fault. Don't say that you're improve our lives say sorry for fucking us up in the past yeah because what people mean when they say that as well is menu's nice now 
Yeah, like that's what that means, right? Like we so made, yeah. a really menu nice is pod. better is what that actually means. It, it's shorthand in Monster Hunter for just letting you get to the good stuff faster. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's fast basically. now. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's really implicitly fast. shorthand for saying we're sorry the previous menu ruined your life, <laughs> <laughs> which is again a sort of self-aggrandizing somehow. Like <laughs> you wanted this so badly, you destroyed yourself on our former menu. <laughs> but our new menu will allow you the same experience while harming you less. You're welcome. Thanks. Anyway, anyway, yeah. So, like, world. It's, it's very, it's a very eccentric game. It's a very eccentric series. I think that's what I gathered from the the um, the DS version, 3DS version. Mm. Is that there's there's lots of stuff that's in it because previous Monster Hunters had those things in it. If you know what I mean. So what they've done is they've replaced a lot of the tracking mechanics with these glowing flies now that you that just highlight tracks on the floor, and that what once you find enough tracks will just take you to the dinosaur that you need to kill and where. Um, and that to me just was an instantly just a much better game just yeah. show me where the thing is so i could do the exciting fighting but you still thing. get a sense of kind of i am a hunter and i'm gonna go and find it and you need yes. to know roughly where they're gonna be as well like the the fishy monster you need to know the world the level mm. the the area well enough to know where the the, the watery bit is yeah that's what, one of the things i love about monster Hunter world especially because the the area is continuous now you, you just move through them without these loading zones um is that you get to see the, the whole ecosystem of the area in action and the the monsters will fight each other. They've got territories, they've got lairs that you get to know and you get to know when they might be away from their lairs so you can steal their eggs and stuff like that. And you know where the kind of critters are, so if you need to mine some critter stuff. Uh, but as you're doing that, you might see, you know, an enormous, uh, like, I can't remember the names because the name's quite weird and hard to memorise, but there's an enormous kind of like salamander that wanders around the first zone. And uh, if it's eaten... It's his favourite prey. Yeah, that's right. When it's, yeah. it, 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 sometimes it has just had a meal and it is enormous. Like it is just. Have, you, have you seen it eat? Have you seen it eat? It's fucking disgusting. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so the best horrible. thing ever. It's so grim. It's like you know a python just kind of like unhinging its mouth and just kind of going over right. and sawing it. Because um, they're, they're they're sort of like herbivore herbivore uh, dinosaurs. Like mm. they look very dinosaury and <laughs> they're huge. Like they're they're three times higher than you are. Uh, and it just like Gold. gobbles it at whole, yeah. Um, but the idea that just sometimes you see a normal one, and sometimes you see one that's just fed, and even that, as Alex hinted at earlier, is, gives you the sense that this thing has a separate life that is just sort of going around mm. the place doing these things. And it also one of the pretty things about Monster Hunter is the different stages that the monsters are at in terms of whether they've just eaten, where they are, um, what state of how wounded they are, like really changes their behaviours and their weaknesses and the way they're going to react to you. So if you see uh, a great jaguar that's just eaten, you can smack it repeatedly in the stomach until it vomits up its thing and then it's like really weak and feels like shit and then you can deliver all your <laughs> mega attacks on you're it. Not, you're not helping me with this whole like are you the secret it's monster? It's brutal. So, well, if, but, you've been, if, you, if you've spent the last 20 minutes of a fight being smashed around with it with it's in its rage, yeah. But you, you started it. Yeah, because sometimes they don't attack first. Quite often yeah, they yeah, run definitely. right past them. Hmm. But later on in the game, they're all vicious as hell. Are, okay. Yeah. That's serious. I don't want to come down on this too hard because obviously <laughs> it's, it's fun. <laughs> and no, no, oh, no, no. stuff you want. You know, it's cool. I mean, they, they are like wondrous creations. Like, amazing, the way yeah. they move, like just and interact with the environment. The environment mm. is very complex. Like, and it always was reasonably like, multi-levels and things mm. and, like even the 3ds was surprisingly good at having like giving this the sense of a a, re- a very large beast in a in an environment but this one they're so incredibly dynamic and kind of falling off things and kind of straddling things and yeah. mantling things and flying up between levels you know you can look up and there's mm. kind of you can look up a giant kind of in the middle of a giant tree and see the your path that you can go up spiraling up and there's a great flying rathian which is a sort oh, of yeah. basically a dragon-looking thing. thing. Mm. Uh, 
um, with a poison tail and, and this thing is just flying up and it's just, you know, it's extraordinary. There are other kind of like, there's always like a prime hunter in the area and they will always hunt the second biggest thing in the area, it seems. Mm. Uh, but you get to know where the second biggest thing lives. So if you sort of like follow the second biggest thing back to its den, a Rathian will come and try and eat it at some point. Like just hunting is normal hunting behavior will happen. And then you're in a three way fight where you're just kind of cowering as these enormous beasts. The animation in this game is absolutely incredible. Like in terms of its, the personality of the creatures, but also it's got an amazing sense of humor to it in the way that you, you run around swigging potions desperately while these two creatures are just strangling each other. Mm-hmm. In the there's, a, there's a particular running animation you do when you're running away from a, from a monster. <laughs> and it's this sort of like very straight backed kind of like looking behind you going, Oh God, no. The kind of bucket kind of run. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you, you could run while you're swigging a potion. You just got this like <laughs> knocking back this potion as you're just kind of like, you know, I really learned that there are animations to that stuff rather yeah. than the sort of Diablo thing of like just mm. consume the resource to get the points. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it is just also getting to know the monsters. Like, I really like the Baroth, which is a kind of mud monster. A mud, they're all kind of T-Rexes really with some, some of that wings. <laughs> um, but this is kind of like a, a T-Rex that cakes itself in mud and that becomes its armor. So it has this incredibly armored face. You can't even see its eyes because you know, it's got this enormous kind of mud hat. Task. Mud hat. Yeah. Which you could wear yourself one day, should you kill enough of them. Uh, but <laughs> this thing, like, you, you spend your time just smashing it up and smashing off its armor. And if you've got, like, a water weapon, because it's coated in mud, you'll weaken its armor and it'll go off faster. And then it reaches a point where it's kind of, like, runs away, whimpering, launching itself acro- across gaps. And as you follow it seamlessly between these zones, it will make its way back to the mud puddles, kind of mud swamps. And it will sink down and just like coat itself in mud again and come out and you know is is armored up again it's, it just it really feels like you're fighting a thing that is has a process and is instinctively reacting to what you're doing mm. and I, I can't think of many video game enemies that feel so exciting to fight yeah yeah it really is is it all boss fights or do you fight like a really little velociraptor all the time uh well there are there are various t- types of quests like it's very much like the very f- the the focus is most certainly on on the big big boss fights mm. um <clears throat> But there are sub-quests that you can do where you've got to kill five Velociraptors and or collect three eggs. Oh, the egg quests are terrible. And the egg quests have always been terrible. Yeah. But they, for some reason, it's something that the quality of life checkers didn't. <laughs> well, this is what I kind of know when I mean it's an eccentric game. Because a lot of the the way it kind of gives you quests and gives you hunts is that you go to a big board and there are lots of different types of hunt. And a lot of this stuff is really poorly explained in yeah. terms of what's an investigation as opposed to, you know, a, a, an event. <laughs> investigation. Yeah, so there's an investigation category. There's an event category. There's an, like... Assigned. A, yeah, assigned category, which is main quests, and another there's one, one other. which... Uh, optional optional <laughs> optional so i mean, I mean <laughs> the rest is implicitly mandatory and the optional ones are probably the most important <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably yeah. arguably like the assigned ones are the story ones because you gotta do those sto- assigned <laughs> so that, that all those layered quests as soon as you kind of crack it it's actually like an incredibly engrossing reward loop that it sets up for you because you, you, when you start getting into the crafting systems you start picking your targets and you say okay actually i, I need to kill like two or three of this p- precise thing uh, and when you're like fighting the later ones they're absolutely furious and like they're always challenging and difficult there's one just kind of like red lizard thing that is just enraged all the time it's, like it's the just off, yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, and i'm trying to craft a full set of armor of that thing because the armor looks fucking rad but the thing is an absolute 
he's an absolute asshole, like a total asshole. <laughs> like you, you get a sort of personal relationship with these things in a way. Like you, like that thing is a particular a dick. You know? <laughs> that, yeah, that one. It, like you're not. That's why I must never, wear it. You are <laughs> yes, never exactly. going to feel bad for killing that thing. No, okay. definitely not. It kind of has this sort of ineffectual little um, wings when it gets really angry. Mm. Like it glows. Like it, it's oh, sort yeah. like there's an internal kind of fiery glow, sort of kind of in its kind of gullet and mm. jaw, and these kind of ineffectual little wings kind of pop up from its back and then kind of fire starts kind of erupting from that <laughs> face oh his, his nose kind of flares as well yeah it's gross oh it's so good i love the way the monsters change lots of kind of um there's an amazing kind of furry t-rex that sort of uh, the more furious it becomes the more fins come out of it it's like that character <laughs> from star trek discovery you just right like, yeah <laughs> um and I, I, like that is an awesome thing to fight as well um, it's, uh, I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's, it's, there's a lot of barriers for new players getting into it, mm. which is the, the, it's the most easy one to get into for, yet, but that's like, that's true. Not the most, <laughs> relatively. Not, yeah. yeah. And, and for, for players on PC, there's a lot of stuff that's very strange about the controls, um, the way that the weapons work. The weapons are really complex and interesting and, you know, you really have to experiment and find a favorite, but there's lots of stuff like you, there are big slow swing weapons, a lot of them. Um, and a lot of the time you're doing combos and they don't track your enemy. So they don't like automatically, you know, re-pointing you at the thing mm. you're trying to hit. You're trying to angle a combo so that you sort of know where the creature's head might be in 30 seconds time in order to whack it with the... Is like it like fighting attack. a Dark Souls boss without lock-on? Um, there is a lock-on. I almost never use it. I think the camera's... But you know what I mean? That, that thing where you switch the lock-on off, lock on, off mm. on purpose so that you can more yeah, that's attack a back leg yes, normally. That's the yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, but it's Dark Souls, but with kind of an extra... Hmm three seconds lag on every single yes, hit right which feels to start with it feels horrible yeah, like i definitely. i i would say most people would think i don't they can't understand why anybody would want to play it mm. but once you get it like but it once you realize that the game is about observing the way that the monsters the tells of the monsters that say you know mm. that you know what they're going to do next you know their behaviors you know the ranges they'll attack at you know where you can stand you know where you want to mm. hit on them and and you're you're ratcheting up attacks that are appropriate for the time and place. Mm. Like that's when you feel like you feel like the king. Like it's so good. And the sense of impact is incredible. Like the, yeah. you can knock monsters on their sides. These enormous things, if you land just a massive blow with all these huge weapons, you just send them onto their side and then suddenly you've got a massive opportunity to do damage. And the weapon- Everybody leaps in. Have you played much moist player? No, not yet. I've, I've done a, a small amount, but it's actually <clears throat> early on, it's quite prohibitive in like it very much limits the stuff you can hunt until I think you've done a lot of assignments and kind of got a load of investigations that you can sort of go on. Um, and I found the multiplayer like quite weird and hard to get into just simply in terms of like, the lobby system. And The lobby system is weird. Like it's very, actually very flexible, mm. but it, yeah, it is really obtuse and kind of op- opaque. But once you know it, it's, it's actually works really well. Yeah. Same. I mean, that's, that's Monster Hunter in a sentence, really. Like all of its systems are like that in terms of its crafting as well. Um, so crafting armor forging armor works differently is much more straightforward than weapons which have many branching elemental variations that you know you require bits of monsters to fulfill and that's very very confusing if you're first starting getting into it Mm. you don't know and you've no idea what to upgrade or what's good in terms of you know it it gives you nothing in terms of direction really you you just have to sort of so there's a get on with it something i'm really surprised i don't know whether it's i'm not going to say this now because it's too early Mm. but like there's a there's a real hump that you go from when you go from low rank to high rank hunting where which is i don't i really don't understand why it's there but Mm. it's probably too early to talk about that Mm. i might uh just quickly not to go on too long about Monster Hunter, but I just want to talk about my favourite weapon. Go for it, yeah. I was going to ask you about it, yeah. Yeah, the, char- so the Charge Blade is something I got into on the 3DS, and it is 
an arsehole of a weapon. It's so weird. It's a sword and a shield, um, but you can plug the sword into the shield to turn it into a giant axe. So very much like a Bloodborne-style switch mm. weapon deal. Um, but it has a whole kind of energy transference system that is super crazy and, like, <laughs> in the middle of a fight when you're trying to manage it, it's just alarming and terrifying and flustering <laughs> at the same time, and I really like it. Um, so where you, you hit it with the sword, and the sword kind of gains charge, and then you can sheath the sword in your shield to transfer, to, to bank that charge into vials in the shield. And then you can use certain moves to transfer, infuse your shield with energy, and then you can infuse your blade with elemental energy. Once you've got them both infused, you can shunt them both into a giant axe that is like mega infused with energy. And then if you smack a monster with that, that is the best feeling in games. It's <laughs> the best feeling in all of games. Because you, you've had, you, it's, it's like a sort of 40 hit combo with very precise moments where you're, you're flipping energy between bits of your equipment. And then you hit that thing, you, the thing in the head with the giant axe that's on fire. And it is amazing. It's, and the thing like, just dies. It's like me a cocktail waiter. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah while while kind of everything's kind of trying to crush you and yeah. you're trying to swig a drink at the same time <laughs> it does sound amazing i completely buy why that's amazing mm. it is kind of amazing that it's like this is extremely inconvenient to achieve therefore <laughs> yeah. it's amazing yeah exactly no it's, it's definitely banks on on that element of games you know mm. when it's really hard to do then when you finally do do it it's like yes yeah, my, my weapon is a uh is the switch axe which oh, is yeah. which is a kind of similar thing where it's a, a large axe but it it transforms into a long sort Ooh. of great sword and um and it and it as you make attacks with the great sword it charges up um and then you're able to kind of dis- make an elemental discharge well, hey, oh, <laughs> i love it it's so good. did they um, say that monster hunter was going to switch uh, uh there is uh so that no mm. not at the moment okay. there is they 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 released in japan only uh, a port of monster hunter generations mm. right from the this seems like a perfect given the way it looks i would be very surprised if it came to switch right and the way it runs <laughs> yes well. it, i mean it's, it's not, not the fastest game yeah. on the ps4 yeah. right fair which is one of the things i'm no, fair enough. looking forward to about the pc to be honest like i mean that game running at 60 uh would yeah. be lovely yeah very tasty i was just mm. going to say one yeah one other weapon i i like and i did get into it back a few years ago but i've kind of forgotten to do it is the hunting horn Oh yeah, <laughs> which it's is a like, hammer that's also a horn. Yeah, it's a giant. <laughs> that's the most vast thing I can imagine. Hammer-like <laughs> yeah. bad pipe. <laughs> that's right. And you can smash bonk like uh, monsters smash over bonk. the head. You smash bonk the <laughs> monsters over the head and knock them out with it. Hmm. But you can also play tunes, which buff your teammates and you. Ah, uh, that's what I want. <laughs> but you've got to do, but it means that in the middle of the battlefield with, with potentially three hmm. l- large monsters all coming at you, you've got to play a large <laughs> bagpipe <laughs> and not that's be able perfect. to do anything else. It's wonderful. It, the game has a, a great sense of humor that's like not initially clear, but in terms of the animations and everything, like it's very, uh, it's very, very cool. And also it has a very kind of, um, and I mean this like really as appreciatively, like it has an amazingly anime sense for showing power in weaponry and striking. Mm. Um, so like when you charge up your charge axe, like you crouch and your thing just like in really like impactful, well rhythmed <laughs> stages just goes and then you let it go. It's the, the sense of rhythm is just really strong. Mm, like, yeah, it reminds it me is. a lot of like yeah. the best kind of Japanese combat games. Mm. Um, is it? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. We've gone on about it, on about it for a while. No, 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 I but it's play. superb. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the question there is do you wait but yeah mm. that's the thing 
Um, how, that was, yeah, I just a question about multiplayer because I think because so much of what I've seen people enjoy about it has been the co-op experience. How my concern would be there's a single player game. It has that kind of single player MMO thing where you're just running up a ladder forever. Is that you can definitely you can definitely play it completely on your own, completely mm. solo it. Um, you can also play it as a solo player, but then invite other players in. It's okay. got this, yeah. it's got a, a system called the SOS, which is a new thing, mm. which is like in the middle of your mission, your, sorry, in the middle of your quest, you can release a SOS flare. And that means that other players can then, mm. if they are searching for a game, though, they can zip into your world. Kind of like a Dark Souls kind of, uh, co-op similar, thing. Similar, yeah. 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 Um, but then, but it's kind of interesting in that, like having more players on your side, like fighting with you doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be more successful because mm. you, because, uh, you, uh, you will fail, um, a, 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 a fight if you faint too many times. And usually mm. the limit is three faints and that will be across the whole team. Mm. Oh, I see. That's so, interesting. So if you get a couple of dopes, come into your game who then instantly die and then suddenly it's game over for you so mm. but it's kind of uh, it's a really i think it's an, it's an in, in practice actually it's really interesting and like there are, i've my some of my best times in the game have been where we've had two early feints and we spent the rest of a really hard battle mm. with knowing that we can't take any more da- hits mm. and and like that is a wonderfully tense experience it's wonderful mm. That's the, really um, the weapons have effects on your teammates as well. So if you're swinging very large weapons around, you'll be displacing your teammates with the, with, so there's an element yeah, of like, you can get, literally lock them flying. Yeah. Like get the hell out of the way of the guy with the giant sword that's doing its super thing, like right. his head, because you know, damn, you, that's good. So you don't well. take damage, but you do take knockback. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That's no right. Uh, but there, there are also like bolt gun classes and archery classes and they've done their best. To, like the archer looks incredible. Like when you're actually doing it. It's a, fun. Yeah. The, 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 it's, it's the, these classes have been in the game for so long. Um, over so many iterations of, of Monster Hunter that all the weapons feel valuable and exciting mm. in their own way. Even they, they've also specified some beginner weapons like the sword and shield, which are still loads of fun and have loads of utility and aren't like bad weapons at all that you can use to game. I think, yeah, I did, there, there's a massive range of them and I don't think there's a, there isn't a duff one in there. You can no. play the game fully with every single one. There's a few I haven't figured out, like the, the bug one that you shoot bugs with yeah, and that's the, breed well, bugs to put in it. What's it called? Yeah, but it's really, really confusing. Yeah, it's really strange. <laughs> Not mastered <laughs> you just mastered the most com- like complicated way of fighting. Yeah, company. so like yeah. what yeah. you do, Chris, is you fire a bug from your arm to one of the monster, right? And it yep. collects an element for you. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then you also have a staff that you, man- you launch yourself into the air with and then you smash it on the head. Uh, and then the bug's there as well. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> Love it. What have you been playing, Chris? Uh, I don't want to uh, talk about too much about this because I've, I've played loads of Nautica, which obviously I talked about at length last week and we've talked about a lot. Uh, it remains great. I really do enjoy it. However, I'm now at a stage with it quite late game where I have a big submarine. And um, I will say, um, I mentioned last week that I love the Jerry Anderson thing of vehicles coming out of other vehicles. And it's the way Subnautica furnishes you with the ability to build your own an outfit, your own kind of expedition stuff, as well as your base, which is super cool. Not having now the big submarine with the sort of robo diving suit mech docked in it is such a great, that game is so good at creating sci-fi moments that would be cool little cutscenes in other games. So when you're going for that last big dive down to the spooky place where it's scary, um, and you think you've just about positioned your, deployment bay over the right section of endless aquatic crevasse and you press the and you climb in and 
you know, you switch off, off all the internal lights so that your big submarine doesn't draw any unwanted attention while it's waiting for you to come back. Mm-hmm. And you climb in in the dark and then drop. And it's just a rush of water. And then you hear, feel the water rushing past you. And then your, you know, boots thump onto the kind of seabed and the lights. All you can see is what you can see out of the lights at the front of your um, prawn suit. And your sub is just sort of lurking there above you is a kind of dark presence. And that's it. Now time to go explore. That's a great feeling. That's like... It sounds absolutely mm-hmm. awful. It's <laughs> so, We talked about this last week. I am a person who suffers for uh, deep sea fears. Yeah, I've uh, got them. Uh, the ocean willies is what we chose to refer to them as. The what? <laughs> the ocean willies. <laughs> last week's, this is very much last week's episode thing. <laughs> I And so I am now at a point where... You know, there are parts of the map where I've pushed out far enough now that it's like, oh, I understand this. I know what scary things are. I know where they are. Um, but there are also parts of the map that I just, I'm too afraid to go in now still. I haven't finished it yet because I'm scared. Um, which is kind of interesting, like, cause it's not like horror game is not on the flagship f- list of features for Subnautica. But there are moments where even just the music changing makes me like, fuck, 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 back to the, back to the sub, get in the sub, <laughs> put all the lights on and just drive to shallow water <laughs> and stay there <laughs> until the music goes back to normal. Like, um, particularly cause you, because there are actually things in the deep. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Like that's the, that's, that's how it gets. It's not just a kind of, when you're on the deep, are you on the the bottom? Like, are you worried about things coming from any direction? Or Pretty whatever? much, yeah. Oh, that's, and that's all the things that I really. And see, there are things. Can that I can, can I do, point out? Yeah. That 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 sometimes, and this is going to going to sound insane here, that I can and take a bath, and I can get into the frame of mind where I'm afraid of being attacked by a shark from below. And I'm in a bath, <laughs> sat there on a don't enamel. play Subnautica. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any of this stuff. I'm quite lucky. Um, I love this. I love the. I want to admire the majesty of these creatures and then wear them. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. Actually, Subnautica is kind of laudable, I think, for setting you up with monsters where it's like, yep, this thing's just going to fuck you up. Like, like, uh, so it's, mm. it, that's not to criti- that's not a criticism of any game where it's about beating up the big monsters, but like, Dark Souls has this logic or any big boss fight game has this logic where like a sufficiently well armed tiny thing can beat up yeah. through a series of sick combos this big old T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Right, you climb up on its head, you hit it in the brain, you know, the Shadow of the Colossus thing, right? Yeah. Um, Subnautica is from, I think, a less common school of video game thought, which is like, no, this is bigger than you. Yeah. You're dead. Like, Ooh. if this existed in real life, it wouldn't have... You wouldn't, uh, you have wouldn't be its natural predator, right? Like, And I think that's... What I, I like that. Uh, I think to get to the bottom of the ocean willies, it's the idea that there could be an area on Earth where you are not the apex predator, as even as a technologically equipped human, right? Mm. Like, not even with the charge blade. Maybe so. That's maybe with the charge blade. Maybe with the charge blade. Like, because you can get like you can get like a um like a an electric pulse for your little mini sub that like um puts off smaller creatures. You can get fit a torpedo arm on a lot of the the stuff and fire torpedoes, but they tend to be like they don't kill stuff they inconvenience and put off things um often your best choice is to run like a lot of the time and then there are creatures that do other things to you that aren't pleasant and um in terms of like i don't want to spoil surprise it's like some what some of the late game enemies can do to <laughs> to upset well it's not like graphically violent or anything. Oh, it's right. just like, oh, I don't want to be here. Like it's, it's, you know, do they go, woo? There's some element of that. Like, right. and also learning how, what they all sound like and things like that. And what's, what that means is kind of important. I remember watching a video with somebody kind of just, uh, they were quite deep and something hit the hull and they couldn't tell what it was. Mm. And 
you know, I mean, that it was looked amazing. Mm. I didn't want to play that. Yeah, the um, sounds great. The sonar feature is great as well. Like we, because the sonar is very great. It pings off any solid object, and so you can use it to see much further than you want. But you sometimes just see the tail of something flicking back into the darkness beyond the sonar range, and it's just like, well, that's 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 there, uh, and it's gone. But it was there. I just saw a second for a second. It's very effective. Like I think, um, I think something that maybe is a through line here that's really interesting is this. That game is very much about your growing feeling of mastery over an environment. And it meets it up very, very, very slowly. And But your mastery is expressed through your ability to survive in a place for long enough to achieve usually like a research or engineering objective and then get the fuck out. Yeah. It's not, I'm going to kill everything here. Because like, it's still similar. It's a crafting arc, right? Like it's gathering materials in one area so that you can then confront the challenges in another area. But in Subnautica, what that means is surviving in a place for long enough to fill your inventory with the bits you need and then run. Because you, you know, you just don't want to die, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's very effective. Like, as I say, I think we've had a couple of episodes where we're talking about it. So want to kind of dig too deep on that, but it's been great. The other thing I've been playing a lot again, um, which we will also not be thrilled to hear me talk about at length, but it's been interesting is I've gotten back to Dota after quite a long break and I'm, I'm a daily Dota man again. Um, mm. and, um, what has been interesting about that is not so much changes to the game, although the game has changed a lot and lots of quality of life changes. Some of them actually genuine, like, oh, that's a thing most games don't do, which is really clever. Like now when you load into a game of Dota, if someone is playing a hero that was changed in the last patch, a little tooltip appears next to them and tells exactly specifically what changed. That's good. Which I think most games should do, yeah. right? Like that's rather useful. than making you read a big long patch notes for anything just pop up the relevant information yeah, when it it's relevant. should be in the game. You should right. be able yeah, to go like, some form. Yeah, post. like, you know, there's a hundred odd characters in this game. Two of them have changed, but one of them happens to be in this game. So there's that particular bit of the patch notes mm. in the game. Yeah. That's clever. Good, good, good bit of design. Um, but what's interesting about it is that, um, and I you know, spent years writing about the psychology of Dota and writing about the psychology of the player base and, and what it did to people who played it, who went in with the good intentions, what it did to people who play, go in bad intentions. And the years since I wrote all that stuff... I myself have started to move away from social media. Like, um, I load Twitter for like once a day to check mentions on the Creating Cobra account and close it again. Um, I spend far less time on Facebook. Like I moved away from a lot of internet social spaces that aren't chat rooms like Discord and things because I realized that it's terrible. I realized that for the most part, all it does is serve to make you sad. And going back to Dota was interesting because Dota is, it's so toxic. It, I was surprised myself having been away from it for a while. Hmm. By how awful it how is. is it exp- how is it kind of expressed Just these through, days? Through a kind of, so occasionally you do have a good game. So it's not to say it's exclusively this, but there's a, a concentration of people who are just assholes to each other, either abusive over chat or voice or, um, uh, quick to blame their teammates for things that are transparently not anyone else's fault or anyone's fault in some cases. And it does feel, I don't know, I will never get to the bottom of what it is about this game particularly that brings this out in people. Because it's not exclusive to Dota, like plenty of games have toxic Mm. communities. But there's definitely something striking about like, oh man, like I just played three games this evening with my friends. And I had sort of fun with my friends. But in that time, in every game, I muted almost everybody. And every game, you know, you get a weekly allocation of uh, behavior reports. And you run out in a night. 
and for legit reasons as well, not just, you know, I, I've always thought Dota needs to give you a report button that doesn't do anything, a report button that does do something, but is limited, so that you can just press the, I think this is a prick button, when you need to feel better. Um, but yeah, like, it's, it's almost spectacular, like, how shitty people are, which is kind of a depressing thing to realise. So, I love that game still, <coughs> but it's made, I'm more guarded about it now, I think, mm. because I used to find that sort of fasc- fascinating in a distance way, and because I made other changes to my approach to the internet, um, out of a desire to be happier, basically. Um, it's a very similar thing in some ways, actually. Like, there's, um, something that drove me away from Twitter, I think, is, is the constant presence of that need to kind of, uh, leap on and correct people right like it doesn't really ever feel like there's a space in the internet where people can just sort of voice views and not have that either taken as a challenge or you know challenged or whatever particularly um and that's just it's just annoying right like and and i don't really blame any individual person it's just the sort of the aggregate desire of a thousand people to correct even a small mistake is overwhelming when you're on the receiving end of that and it's just depressing right Mm -hmm. like it makes you feel you can't get anything wrong you typo something whatever same comment dota's like that it's like also concentrates people like people's aggregate desire to unhelpfully criticize each other and making it sound like hell i appreciate but i'm more aware of that now like i have to go in knowing what i want to get out of it and i have to go in wanting something different from uh battlegrounds which is the other game i play with my friends because battlegrounds is far more pleasant because it's usually just you and your mates and everyone else is just an anonymous kind of yeah they're kind of like enemy on the on the horizon and they those two games sit um those are the two games i played the most that aren't subnautica at the moment um sit next to each other because one of them dota like the problem with battlegrounds is you go off in your little kind of um murder orienteering solipsism and sometimes you have an amazing game and sometimes you just over sometimes and then sometimes you get in the awkward awkward middle ground where you walk for 20 minutes you loot you talk to your mates and then it just it's just, you lose the first firefight you get into it can sometimes feel like a game and nothing happens or the thing the meat of the game which is exciting firefights with dynamic elements doesn't occur or occurs once unsatisfactorily, then you wait half an hour for it to happen again. Whereas Dota, something's always happening. It's a game of hyper-complex wizard maths, and there's always something to do. And if you're playing well, you're always busy, and you're always strategizing with your friends, and you're always doing the good thing. But that makes everyone furious and sad mm. and depressed and upset when they get it wrong. So maybe the answer between these two poles is to play... Alone. Alone. (laughs) Yeah. And then the Deep Sea game makes me deeply frightened. Basically, I'm having a great time with video games across the board. This is like, yeah, it's like two different flavors of social anxiety and the terror of the ocean. But it's interesting, is it? Like, I was just thinking about how, you know, uh, the, the, the games that people assume kind of makes, make people kind of unpleasant online. You, they think that it's the ones where you're directly shooting people, you know, the Mm. PUBG. Surely is the one where that attracts a certain kind of kind of person or inspires sort of unpleasant behavior in them. But mm. you know, maybe that's true, but you don't get exposed to it. Whereas Dota, the, because it's a team game, is where you know. Yeah, it's funny that which is meant to be the social, like on, on the very looked at a very facile way, would say you are social and therefore everyone mm. can get along. But absolutely not. Yeah, Dota has a sportsmanship problem, I think, because yeah. it's a legit competitive exercise. And it's a very complex competitive exercise, and it's actually a very poor fit for mismatched matchmaking i feel i feel like a lot of this stuff is a is a consequence of having a game that is so intensely team-based that actually if you were designing the perfect version of it it would probably not let you play with anything short of a full team of your friends because the moment you start adding random elements or like it'll never be perfect yeah it'll never be perfect yeah. and 
and in those little fractures resentment quickly grows like no joke we've been we've been when we play as a four and there's a fifth random person we've been referring to that as the blame space for the better part of five years because it's the person you it's a joke but it's the person you blame right Mm. but i know what it feels like to be the blame space into someone else's stack and you know and you know it it's interesting because there's a parallel in monster hunter where you know because of that mechanic where you know you can you can displace uh your your fellow hunters with mistimed with misplaced strikes um which means that they've they've always been kind of like slightly snarky kind of comments about oh here comes a great sword user spamming the circle button the circle button does this kind of whirling move which which is kind of notorious for moving people out of the way because it's really long range Mm. um so there's that element but also you know there are certain weapons that you want to be in certain positions on the on the monster like in general their weakest points are their heads so Mm. everyone tries to go for their heads but then if you've got a hammer player on your team you know in your party um really you want them on the head because if they stomp a dinosaur on the head they have a good chance of knocking it out because it because of the kind of damage that the hammer delivers um stun damage um but if if they're being displaced by some great sword user then suddenly like they're going to get angry. And as soon as you make a game with interesting kind of deep rules like that, which are the things that actually make you, make me want to play more because Mm. they're Mm. kind of like something to really invest in. They're actually the place where the sort of the nastiness can pop up in, in Monster Hunter. Um, And I don't, I mean, I would hope it from what I've seen online, Monster Hunter world is a fairly happy place at the moment, but Mm. it definitely all, Every, all the pieces are there for it to become an extremely <laughs> toxic and unpleasant place. It makes me think of, like, when I used to play football, like, a long time ago, like, in just, like, regional competitions, you'd be part of a team and you'd be with other people from other teams who would be strangers. And you see exactly the same type of fractures happening face-to-face, and you'd be playing a, a team of strangers and playing with strangers, like, half the time. And um, you get all the same things where you get teammates blaming one another, people getting aggressive. Um, but uh, it's so kind of, like taught that that's part of the game and that it stops yeah. when the game stops yeah that it doesn't create like a lasting bitterness it's just part it's part of the excitement of the competition actually and actually ag- aggression and aggro and you know bad language and stuff in the right context uh is part of the excitement of competition mm. uh, but uh, as long as like it ends when it ends and it doesn't go too far right it doesn't actually turn into violence or whatever yeah i, and think- I wonder like if it just it's a different context online isn't it it's interesting like because i experienced that a lot um because i used to be big into rowing and um and coxing specifically and there was definitely a kind of um a lot of different attitudes like i was never comfortable being kind of and i know the word cox is funny so i'm just gonna have to get through that and the course of this anecdote um but there are a lot of people who wanted um particularly very competitive often male rowers who would want a particular form of basically like abusive coxing like where it's more like you're a drill sergeant in the army screaming abuse at people in order to make them row better and quicker and on time. And, but equally, and that was often represented at the highest level of the game and became kind of normalized among the coaching and coxing of people at the top level of the game. Mm-hmm. So a certain, uh, of the sport. So a certain amount of like toxicity was kind of, um, mm-hmm. embedded in the attitudes of certain clubs and certain squads at a certain point. And this is something that's interesting. Cause I think there is actually a parity with, um, that I found with, um, video games is however that same attitude would be off-putting and often deeply unhelpful to people at the beginning 
of their journey. People may have all the talent and potential in the world, but who would find the kind of embedded toxic assumption of the correct attitude towards the competitive thing to be the thing that broke it for them. So I ended up drifting more towards like um, lower level boats of, of all sorts and, and coaching that end of things because I preferred an approach that was more like positive, exciting, hopefully, and kind of energizing, but not abusive. Yeah. And then what was really interesting is like briefly during that time in my life, I ended up um, coxing some very, very high level rowing. And suddenly on the, on the far side of the bell curve, the abuse all petered out again. Really? Because at the very best don't want the distraction and the nonsense and the theater of that abuse and the swearing and the, because they're probably the invested anyway. They don't because to be yeah, they're, you can assume investment because it's people operating at the highest level of the sport. Um, and that's not to say none of these are going to be universally true rules. It was just my experience, but that is something that mapped very cleanly onto how I encountered Dota players back when I was covering that professionally a lot more as well, where like new players more often than not, unless they come into the games as bastards, kind of want to learn and want to have fun and stuff and then very 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 good players people who are about to play in the international grand finals for millions and millions of dollars are normally pretty chilled out with each other and normally have a lot of trust and don't resort to kind of abuse and swearing and kind of getting really aggro mm. with each other oh, i wonder it's, if sorry, aspirational yeah. talent appears to be the worst thing <laughs> it's right like it, it is it's the bell end curve yeah and <laughs> <laughs> but i wonder if like um sometimes like insults and stuff actually creates stakes for people. Like, um, you get people that you dislike and that you really want to beat. And then suddenly this competitive thing is, is more important because you're personally invested in yeah. fighting that particular person. And, you know, isn't that part of, that's part of competition, isn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like, I think that's the same thing. It depends on the, the sport and the context. Yeah. And I think. <laughs> I do, but I don't think it's always possible to leave stuff behind as part of the game mm. or like it shouldn't be reasonably expected that you do if there's an alternative to abuse, right? Mm. Like, and again, it, it's a big what if, but it's interesting from a game design point of view because I agree with you, Alex, that sufficiently interesting team focused design inevitably creates ways for people to fail each other. And as soon as you can do that, like, I mean, it's, well, it's that kind of, you know, I, you know, part of what I take is from, from the, you know, the Dota, you know, the, the pro Dota example you were talking about, which is really interesting. And it feels like part of it is the kind of people who get angry because, because, uh, because people have failed them in a team or they mm. perceive that are usually not very good because they're not secure in their own abilities. And so right. they like bluster comes over the top of it or just p- blaming others, you know, and it's, it's, you know, saving face and, and avoiding the truth that they're not very good, you know, but it's, but despite the fact they put value in themselves for that, you know, mm. which I, which is not all of an explanation for this sort of thing, but it, it, there's, there's an element of that. And, Uh, Yeah. Yeah, And there's elements of people setting their own kind of getting frustrated with each other because they set their own standards for themselves, but don't communicate that well. Or like, I think the interesting one is like, um, so, uh, battlegrounds PUBG is really interesting for this because most of your success and failure in PUBG is actually quite invisible to your teammates. Like people can't, the ballistics are kind of, you know, uh, it's very good to be good at the ballistics in PUBG, but it takes learning. Right. And that's those successes are usually invisible. You've missed a lot in that game. Yeah. And so when your teammate fails to get a kill, you can't, there's yeah. basically everyone sympathizes with that. Cause anything could happen. Everything, you know, when bullets, mm. it's, 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 you know, it's not realistic, but that element of it has some, has some sort of verisimilitude where yeah. it's like when people start shooting at each other, 
mad things happen and stuff just goes wrong sometimes. Sometimes you catch a stray bullet, right? No one blames people for that. Where, where the blame tends to come in is when people don't communicate well, right? Like, um, but often that's a way of offloading. Like, so if I, you know, I, I've definitely done this where I get caught, um, because a teammate has told me someone's in a certain direction, but hasn't been very specific. And I've made maybe the mistake of overextending or going a bit further and making my own assumptions about where someone might be. And then I get shot in the back because I misunderstood my friend. And it's very easy to go, I wish you'd be more specific about where that person was. Because that's basically the only area of the game where you you directly kind of gauge someone else's perception of what's going on relative to your own, if that makes sense. Mm. Whereas in Dota, one of the things that's super interesting about it is all of the game information in Dota is completely transparent to everyone who's playing. You, so, you know, obviously if you're super quick, you can click on other people's inventories and see their cooldowns and everything else. But you're all sharing a common isometric perspective. And therefore everybody sees what happens. And, and you experience with the game, you learn to read it perfectly. So there's no, there's no ambiguity, right? There's no my perspective, mm, your perspective. No to engage. Because even in like football or something, right? Like, well, in literally any uh, physical, traditional, real team sport, uh, we're all humans who look out of our own eyes that's my revelation. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like that's, that's, you know, we have more far, like those are a rare example. And maybe this is one of the keys to why it makes people so awful is that it approaches something like a relatively objective perspective on the game. Or at least gives you the sense that it, yes. what you saw was happening. Yeah. Happened. Yeah. Obviously it's subjective to a yeah. great degree because everything is, but, but that, I think that's where it lies because like yeah. everyone thinks they saw the truth. Yes. Everyone thinks, feels like they're saying the truth all the time. Whereas in any other context, most apart from similar video games, yeah. you are far more aware that what you're seeing is your perspective on events. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I thought like my experience of negativity online in video games is like a kind of, uh, just omniscient shittery that goes in all directions at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Whereas you know, the, the, my real life, uh, like IRL competition stuff, it tends to be like quite focused and, you know, the rivals, uh, rivalries emerge, but it's not just overall everyone hates everyone else to an extent and everyone's just having a bad time. You know, everyone's excited and into it for the moment and then it ends. Whereas it feels like, you know, uh, a, a public horrible exchange between people in a, a game of Dota perhaps just brings everyone down a bit. Perhaps. Yeah. It's, I think, I think, yes, I think Sets that's the same thing. I think also, um, there's the, the common internet factors like anonymity. I also think kind of memes as a concept often make this easier because like a lot of Dota memes or like, you know, jokes or little phrases or whatever are, are kind of like shortcuts to flaming, right? Like real life doesn't really have that quite so much. Or if you engage in it in real life in mm. sort of like trying to drag someone down with like, a, a, a cliched joke you just look like a dickhead whereas that's that's called a meme if you do it on the internet and like <laughs> um like we've very been like the internet's very good at creating like like quick shortcuts to being a twat to another human being yeah, which is kind of interesting. They're, they're so quick they're, there's no room for no nuance and like it could be just sort of sort of everything is put in black and white yes exactly yeah like the the, the original the, and the stupid thing about these is they are quite, they're funny when it's not you that they're pissing off, right? So that, well, but, but that part of that like, amusement is kind of relief that it's not you. Like there's some schadenfreude. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But that, that is also a negative. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's sure. like, it's just fueled by negativity. Anyway, still probably my favorite game ever. 
you're going to go I, back to it. Gonna, yeah, well, actually, so I'll, I'll, I'll caveat this whole thing by saying last night I had some very sad games with Dozer. I just wasn't, wasn't very happy at all. And then I, I you know, went to bed thinking maybe I should take a break again. Maybe this has been a two week experiment. And it's over. Then today at lunchtime gave myself a treat of lunchtime dough and it was great. I was playing by myself, but I was with all other solo players. And the other Can you team, search for so- all solo teams? No, you can't. Um, Is there a reason for that? Uh, matchmaking. Oh, you just need... Um, it prioritises other things. It will if it can, but it'll prioritise common language over that. Right. Um, because that's just a riddle that it'll never solve adequately. Yeah, reason. Um, but... Um, uh, and it was just one of those games that was lovely. Like, the other... So the enemy team ended the game by saying, like, please report my teammates. They're all awful twats. So they were <laughs> they were going nuclear. <laughs> but on, on Team Us, I think because we started winning from quite early from the start of the game, and we all played quite well, there was a lot of, like, well played, that was good. Mm-hmm. I suspect that if we had gone wrong... <laughs> it all turned to shit. It would have gone to complete shit. <laughs> but it was, uh, in isolation, a positive experience with other people. And I did commend them all at the end and give them the little tick and get the commands back and there was like well played team <laughs> whoop whoop Good it's job. that one experience okay another two weeks of misery then <laughs> <laughs> it's been five years Alex <laughs> um, anyway so that's that's what I've been up to two. any more for any more any other games people been playing uh, about the hunt I've been playing um, the hunt obviously is most of my life at the moment but I'm also reviewing Final Fantasy 12 for PC Gamer oh wow oh wow yeah so the remaster of that Zodiac Age came out on the PS4 and Xbox One perhaps or maybe just PS4 mm. uh, last year it's one of my final, favourite Final Fantasy games and it also has some of the most obvious flaws of any Final Fantasy game apart from 13 which is just glaringly bad in spaces Final Fantasy 12 has one of my favourite um, RPG party systems in any game which is the Gambit system mm. Uh, which is essentially instead of asking you to micromanage a squad of heroes, um, you design their AI instead. Yeah. And that's the game. The original Dragon Age nicked this system wholesale. They did. The best yeah. thing about that game. Absolutely. And it's, it's tremendous in Final Fantasy XII. Wow. Uh, the, 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 the way mistake, it unlocks is cool as well. Yeah. But it's, I, for me, it's like way too slow. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, so the game becomes interesting. Uh, as soon as you have enough party members and enough gambits between them to start creating uh, a machine, basically a kind of cross-party machine, a death ball, exactly a kind of self-sustaining murder squad that can heal itself with incredible efficiency, uh, but also debuff enemies that need to be debuffed, hit enemy weaknesses, you know, just automatically. Um, so what you're, you're just making a, a machine and watching it go, and the watching it go element is very passive, which is the problem with the early game when you only have like two moves or two gambits or two squad members because your guys do everything automatically and you're just watching two people twat things with swords and you have nothing to do with it uh, however once you start facing more difficult enemies you start to get you know really into the gambit system and, and it's so let's you tailor your party to such a, a fine degree that it's a completely engrossing almost like puzzle game mm. where you can you can put a, it's basically a list of tiered commands and your character will move through each command from the top to bottom so the top command might be um ally below 10% health cast heal on them and if any ally drops below 10% health they'll just do that automatically and then you might have a different character that isn't a healer who is uh detect enemy first of all scan enemies for weaknesses then you know a series of gambits that say okay if enemy weak to fire cast make a fire spell and then you you do this and you eventually create just an interlocked network of uh, abilities and spells. Um, 
and it's almost like a kind of Pokemon game where you, you just go into a dungeon and just let them get on with it and just sit back and marvel at your mastery of this, uh, this beautiful int- intricate mm-hmm. puzzle system. Um, the, the great thing that the Zodiac Age remaster does is it adds an essential fast forward button. So, uh, you can yeah. choose to just press a button and the game will double in speed. Or you can go to the menu options and say, actually, I don't want it to double in speed. I want it to quadruple in speed when I press that button. Um, so you can set up your team, your magnificent kind of grinding uh, mechanism. And then you could go out into a plane full of the hardest enemies and go four times speed and just watch them clear out and just get all of the rewards that it would have taken you in the original version, like 10 hours to get in like just, you know, 20 minutes or something. And you're just sitting back there, just like cackling at how beautiful <laughs> and spectacular this sort of glorious, you know, uh, spectacular show of idea. death is. Um, and that's why Final Fantasy 12 is, is for me the most satisfying, uh, Final Fantasy RPG as an RPG kind of combat system. Um, and I, I love Final Fantasies for all of their, uh, just for their, their worlds and the series, for the most part, its ability to change so much from game to game, mm. while keeping a, a few of its kind of uh, mascots, like your chocobos and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, like Final Fantasy VII's combat system is really different to Final Fantasy VIII's, even though they're they're all just kind of like turn-based attack games. Final Fantasy IX went back to like an old-school job system again, just kind of just renovating it. Uh, and twelve is the boldest thing they've ever done with Final Fantasy, and it was kind of a similar time when they were developing the MMOs. So mm. there's, there's definitely an MMO. DNA in Final Fantasy XII system, um, but it is for me just the, the most successful, you know, scored That's combat. Super cool. yeah. You mentioned you mentioned that um, it's it had some low points as well. What, mm. what were they? Um, so well, first of all, like the, the the start of the game massively front loads some very boxy, quite poor sewer levels. There are a lot of them. Like it, it's a lot of going into sewers and they're going into a prison. They go back into some sewers and it, it goes on a long time. Uh, the plot is deeply confused it it's kind of has some obvious leading characters that and yet it lumps you with van this kind of i don't know fairy kind of type figure a kind of youthful uh you know i don't know how to describe him really it's well, just, a little boy the, the little the just a little urch- urchin yeah uh, who's just a total nobody like ev- he's got the worst american kind of um, accent uh, kind of voice yeah and he's just so uninteresting. Every, and the, there are like several plots unfolding around him. First of all, there's a cool sky pirate adventure theme, uh, championed by Balthier, who's like a waistcoat wearing, you know, quipping British, uh, you know, dandy of the skies. And, uh, his companion is some sort of dominatrix <laughs> rabbit thing she's uh, kind of like chewbacca as well <laughs> yeah in in role that's her role with the she story. doesn't really say much but she's massively hugely powerful and like basically she's incredible kind of, and just like yeah she's yeah. got a massive bow and she's a master of dark magic <laughs> and can stop time and stuff like this while balthier is just kind of quipping and, and shooting stuff and they've got an airship and they go around the world having adventures and stealing stuff and then there's also kind of like shakespearean plot about kings and, and queens and you know uh, there are twins there's a you know that do stuff and there's like oh it was my twin that did that instead that kind of twist that happens <laughs> right. as well so in that respect it's kind of a mess but it's kind of a beautiful mess because um, a lot of the art direction i think came from um so the people behind vagrant story which is a really super mm, interesting I story i think it was written by the same person as well and the same person as behind final fantasy tactics uh, that, that, like the story all the kind of like political wrangling kingdom stuff is so like vagrant stories there's so many similar looking villains like there are the judges in final fantasy 12 who look amazing and they're kind of the main antagonists the whole thing these sort of hyper armored brutes who all have their own kind of political aspirations that's very very vagrant story that all comes from that uh, a vagrant story was um all these kind of sepia toned uh just kind of it has very similar artistic roots it's really hard to 
pinned it down feels, how. It feels a lot like, so Vagrant Stories in this kind of um, abandoned kind of city, isn't it? Like, mm. and you're going through these kind of halls and things. It feels a lot like Dark Souls, actually. Yeah. Very kind of uh, lonely place, but sort of, yeah. Occasionally you'll see some soldiers marching around trying yeah. to do something political yeah. <laughs> to the kingdom um, but it's, it's a super interesting game uh, it seems like to me a little bit highly priced for a remaster it's like, like 27 28 pounds for mm. a game that still i mean they've done a good job the remaster for the most part but the all of the textures apart from the characters have obviously just undergone the, the, the same process so they've been kind of like color like colorized and defined and then some sort of random noise pattern has been put over it and that is a little bit distracting especially having played the original ps2 version i don't kind of subscribe to a lot of the op-eds that have said that it loses its spirit for this having happened um but it, it is something that will be noticeable on a, uh, a pc monitor um, yeah, but- so I, i'd be i was playing it last year on ps4 and mm. um it, like from across the room it's, it's okay like, yeah it's noticeable but on a yeah, close up, I can see it. Yeah, I was playing it early today on a like, 4K monitor and it's just like, mm. yeah. but I mean, I, I, I tend not to go bogged down with that stuff if the systems are good and they really are in Final Fantasy XII, I think. Mm. I find them very good. Lots of very good sort of hidden high level challenges, which I love in Final Fantasy games, like the weapons in Seven, um, the Bahamut in like the other games. Like I love these secret hidden bosses that really force you to, like the dragons in Dragon Age Inquisition actually, mm. you know, where it really forces you to engage with the combat systems to their maximum potential and really push them. Yeah, um, yeah. 12's good at that. Awesome. I don't actually really like to play that, actually. But yeah, you're right. The price is off-putting at 30 quid. So. It's a bit much for me, mm. personally. Yeah. Mm. But that's a Steam sale waiting to happen, right? It really is. Mm. <laughs> Alex, I believe you've been RPG combating. I went back to um to, uh, Original Sin 2. The mm. Original Sin 2. Um, I kind of... I didn't intend to stop playing it, but it just happened. because That's how it goes with yeah. CRPGs, Alex. Uh, I, I, that's good, but that's actually good to know because I, every single one I've kind of stopped and started and stopped and I thought it yeah, was me. Yeah, they're, they're, they are the meat of my Steam Shame list. Yeah. Yeah, because, and this one is so good. I've, it's such a lot of fun. Um, and, um, I'm in Act 2 and stakes is getting higher and, but the, my abilities are really raising and I was just interested in the, the, the fighting system. I mm. interviewed, um, one of the combat engineers for it about how on earth they balance, um, just the sheer range of things that are happening. Like mm. they've got to, they've got to cope with the fact that, um, the player might not be fielding all of their party because one of their party is, you know, two of their party could be on the other side of the map. So there's only two. Oh, yeah. They might have summon abilities. The other team might have some abilities. Uh, you know, the AI it might side. be raining. It might be raining. There might be, you know, there's, there's the whole things on fire or there's acid everywhere. And there, there are enormous numbers of different spells and consumable goods and things like that. And how on earth they balance all that. And, um, is they're really interesting on that uh, in the way that they kind of kind of managed to focus down because I, I played original sin one but i really didn't get far on that and i know i stopped because i just got bogged down like I it just, was very difficult it was really hard and i got into some fights that i just couldn't possibly win mm. and it's sort of like and i was in the main town for ages and i just thought i just can't just i just don't want to go on um uh but i remember the battles being incredibly chaotic and I just never felt under control. Um, and this one, I feel surprising in control, given the amount of kind of variability, you know, things that happen. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it was interesting there. One of the things that they do is to, for every 
buff and debuff they have opposites so uh for the, their elemental effects you can put onto the ground you can set the ground on fire or you can freeze the ground and that has effects to any character that goes into them hmm. um but but rather than you know there are a lot of loads of them but they're usually opposites so if you have a frozen piece of ground um you fire cast fire on it you then you know the the, the first time you cast fire on it it'll turn to a, a sort of like a puddle and then the second time you cast fire on it, it'll become a fire. So there are steam and then, yeah, but there's yeah. steam in the air, but and that can be electrified sort of oh, thing. Shit. But, but yeah. there are always kind of, it feels like the variables are kind of like out of this world, but actually they're all on these kind of little mini scales. And, mm. you know, it's actually a push pull thing between two scales rather than lots of individual things that are happening. It's interesting because it's, um, it's interesting in comparison with, uh, Final Fantasy Twelve actually, because it's a game where you wouldn't want the gambit system because actually your your brain is better at passing the logic of those situations yeah. faster than you could usefully program yeah. it. Like you could program it because the logic is understandable. But whereas like the Final Fantasy Twelve thing or the Dragon Age thing might be if um like if enemy weak to fire cast fireball, in this it would be like if enemy in puddle and no allies in puddle yeah. cast lightning bolt if it isn't raining. Yeah. And right? there's no enemy nearby, which might be... Yeah. And no target. conductive surface yeah. also yeah. nearby. You know what I mean? Whereas you can look at that in a second and go, that guy's wet. No one else is wet. Zap. It's and the, it's like, it it's follows better of, in your own brain. Yeah. Like the, the fun fantasy thing is like, it's so abstract. Like, you know, like there's, as the combat's actually, it's just, it, there's, it has nothing to do with the, the geography of the space you're fighting in whatsoever. Yeah. And that's, that's hugely different to divinity, which is all about like area of effects, templates acting mm. on a, a space. And fun fantasy 12, you're right. It's very abstract in the sense that you just let them fight in a box. Basically. <laughs> I'm surprised they managed to get either. It's actually as, as sort of functional as it is mm. because, um, it feels a bit like, you know, that, yeah, you can get an AI to do Final Fantasy really easily, but because of that abstractness, you know, because it's all just sort of, uh, it's basically a spreadsheet happening, you know, mm. and you just sort of, whereas this is kind of like the chess thing where it's about human intuition on a thing. So like, oh, I feel that's the right thing to do. I think also there's an element that like they have slightly different objectives, like as RPGs. So like uh, Final Fantasy, and maybe this brings back to Monster Hunter, like Final Fantasy, even though it approaches it a lot of different ways, is traditionally a, pro- is, um, they traditionally have like when they're working quite well managed arcs in terms of how you powerful you feel mm. and how hard you're having to work to overcome bosses and where they are like, weak is when they have planned grinding time. Like the designers have gone and said, yeah. we plan for you to spend 10 hours in this area, rinsing it for the rewards you need in order to have fun in the next area. And that was just a design sensibility that has sort of faded from games. Um, whereas um, and that's because the, you know, the, the arc of the plot is carefully mapped out. You traditionally don't have loads of choice about where you go next. Hmm. It's a planned curve, right? Like a power arc. It's really, Whereas divinity isn't. Divinity is like, a, is well, far that, more that's a sandbox. Interesting. That's interesting because he said that like they, they were very keen to have a power arc, um, because they need to be sure that. So one of the problems with, um, the original release of divinity, original sin one mm. was so before they oh, his extended edition or something like that anyway there's a second edition they, they released the original one they had problems with uh, the gold economy in it mm. and um it was quite interesting the um the re- like people just had too much money like they were just 
coming to the end. And they just like money bags. Like there was something clearly really wrong. And the reason was that they weren't buying armor. Nobody bothered buying armor. <laughs> they, they bought swords. They always made sure they had got swords. Um, uh, but they, nobody bought armor. And um, because they didn't feel the armor really gave them much, you know, they didn't really understand it. Like the, the, arm, the, the armor system in that game, I can't remember the details of what it was, but it, it was kind of a little bit illegible. They totally changed the armor system for uh, Divinity 2. Um, but like the, the fix to, to, to the economy, gold economy was, get people to buy armor and suddenly the whole economy sort of fixed itself <laughs> and it was all fine. Um, um, in Divinity 2, they definitely wanted a power curve, mm. but they were willing to, to have a really powerful sword, like to be found, you know, there might be a secret sword that not everyone would get. And they'd be happy for that sword to be, um, uh, to, to kind of like to, for the next couple of hours, for instance, of play to like, make them rinse every battle but they they felt that was okay that was fine in fact that was good because it helped people feel powerful but um to counter that they made the power curve uh um steeper so that every level you get that much powerful so that gear that you had um became obsolete quicker Mm. um and they, they admitted that actually they made that a bit too steep. People wanted to keep their gear for a bit longer. They were getting frustrated that they had to swap everything out as fast as they did. Mm. But, um, but that actually fixed a lot of that along with the armor changes, which are a lot more legible mm. than in one. Um, uh, I remember actually, yeah, the reason why people weren't buying armor in Divinity one was that, um, the the weaponry was too powerful they were just mm. hitting everything before they needed any armor so like and the, by the end of the game they were just overpowered um one interesting stat they said that was that um whether people were bad players or good players like um uh everybody ends up with the same amount of money like you know if they're playing on um easy level or hardcore level good players bad players like they all do but there's a mode where which is a kind of an iron man mode, mode where um it's sort of like an insta kill thing like permadeath mode and in that game uh people uh have eight times the amount of money that they do in any other mode <laughs> any other skill level any other ability level interesting because they're all terrified of dying so <laughs> they rinse every single <laughs> crate every single thing they explore everywhere so they 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 max out their ability to kind of have the best gear in case they die. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really awesome. But um, yeah, like you know, it like kudos to them because they really have do give you an enormous amount of power and a massive sandbox in which to to do exploits. They like exploits. They but they want they don't want any exploit to last longer than a certain time. You know, mm, and they will throw you curveballs. You know, instead of the third act is a lot of the encounters are designed specifically to prevent players from using like powerful exploit kind of move, like tactics. Hmm. So if some, there is a specific battle in act three, which is makes it impossible to use teleport. If you've been leaning on teleport all the way through your game so far, then this one, you're not going to better use it because it's using the mechanics in the game that, that kind ah, of, that's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just really admire that game, and I wish I, I, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> it's interesting. That's another interesting point of contrast between Final Fantasy XII and something like Divinity: Original Sin Two, is that where those games place um, 
put the space where the player expresses themselves. They put it into different parts of the system. So uh, 12, I should uh, have mentioned before, actually, like you can class any character to any specialty. Any character can be a mage or a ninja or, you know, you could turn um, the, the precocious child into a broadsword wielding maniac that you get everyone else to cast frenzy on. And then that you just sort of let them set them off to kill all the enemies. And all the, um, all the player expression goes into designing those roles and you, you don't have to be invested in any of the characters to enjoy that stuff. Mm. Whereas there's the expression in Divinity Original Sin 2 where um, it seems to be in the actual kind of execution of moves and the execution of strategies in the moment. Although you can reclass any character in Divinity. Oh, that's yeah. like when you meet yeah. the When you meet the companions, they say like, I'm, I'm actually a mage, but do you want me to be a mage? Oh, yeah, You're like, like, no, I wish you were a rogue. And they're like, oh, I guess I'm a rogue. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's literally a con- like Each of them has a conversation, yeah. like a voiced conversation about like, what do you wish I was? Yeah. I really need to play it more. Like, it, it's it's great. It, you'd love it. Like, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's, solved loads of my like gripes with that type of game. Anyway. Yeah, it's like it's it's got it's. I think it's got some issues with sort of. Um, I think it can be exhausting because yeah, it's cool, yeah. it's like there are so many things to consider, and every fight is kind of new. Like, I get about the same amount of amount done in a divinity session as yeah. I expect to happen in a D and D session. Mm. <laughs> Whereas like, right, you know, yeah. so like when I first started planning, like pen and paper role playing, I started to think about like, well, in three hours of a video game, I'd probably have 10 fights <laughs> and no three hours of a role playing session. Yeah. is like two, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe one and some town time. Like, and divinity's kind of like that. It's like, yeah. I played for three hours and what I kind of, what did I do? Like, I kind of, yeah, I, I there was some switches on the ground. I couldn't find the third one. That was the first hour yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I, I talked to a rat but it was a bit of a blind alley and then i fought some men but then i stopped <laughs> yeah like and in a good way though mm. where it's like it all it all matters so much i think i cheapened divinity original sin 2 from myself a bit by going on such a rampage through the first area after i kind of finished it mm. um yeah i yeah it is a death death like valley for me as well that original town yeah it's like yeah i killed a lot of people they (laughs) it was their fault it was their they were bastards therefore to move back to the logic from earlier (laughs) it's fine (laughs) (laughs) shall we do some questions yes let's do that yes do that yes do that um that's fine so we had a slightly abortive start to questions the first time around because I thought I was going to burp, but then I didn't. I thought when you were saying yes, like in a really long way, I thought that might transition into in an alarming way, but it was <laughs> fine in the end. Um, we made it. Taking everyone on this journey together. Um, let's do some questions. We present a decent number of questions. We're only going to answer two on this episode, partly because uh, we're a little bit short on time. Tonight. It's gotten very late. It has gotten very late because we started a little bit late. So apologies if you did write in. We did uh, read and enjoy a remaster. Thank you very much for that. We talked about them. We did talk about them, <laughs> but not in a helpful <laughs> way with the microphone. Because oh, no, hang on, that would probably be really frustrating to hear that, that we talked about them. Oh, don't draw attention. This is not the oh, kind yeah. of disruption we were going for. <laughs> uh, no, but um, we often get sent really good questions or uh, often long questions or interesting anecdotes that we don't have like a kind of podcast mileage in terms of answering, but they're not less very good questions. So if you have emailed us, thank you very much. Uh, our first uh, question, what we don't have uh, speaky thoughts about comes from Robert who writes, hi, Creighton Crowbar. 
I've recently started a job working with at-risk and neglected children, which I'm loving. Surprisingly, my knowledge of Minecraft has been incredibly beneficial to this role, as my knowledge of building the perfect roof and my stories of a beta Minecraft, where there was no creative mode or redstone, has really helped me bond and engage with the children, to the point that my fiancé jokes that Minecraft has been more beneficial for my career than my master's degree. My question is, have video games contributed to your life or job in an unexpected way or situation? Uh, thanks for casting... <laughs> Robert, sorry, I laughed at that because, like, <laughs> yeah, obviously, like, what <laughs> what's become of me? Um, so anyway, there's a PS that may be interesting people from who listen to the previous episode. Um, PS, the Magic the Gathering card Tom F was talking about, uh, was a Charizard, which forces you to play a sub magic game and is banned in literally every, everything competitive <laughs> as you conceivably copy and recur the spell, forcing you to play infinite sub games within sub games, as well as giving magic judges a migraine. Uh, that's from Robert. <laughs> is it what's called Charizard? Uh, Charizard. Oh, okay. <laughs> Close. Yes. You play a shiny Charizard <laughs> and then you have to play another game with magic. Pokemon within Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a togepi. Um, the, uh, so to the point though, um, so the, so the question, have video games influenced your life and your career in an expected way? Um, I feel like is self-evident. Yeah, Hi, I play toy games for a living. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Indeed. I once spent a lunch break writing a blog post about Metro 2033 and now I've lived <laughs> in Bath for seven years and that decision has changed my entire life. <laughs> Yeah, we all have similar origin stories. Yeah, exactly. I would say. So yeah, that would, but, but, don't know, uh, Minecraft is like, is been a cool thing to be alongside mm. because of that interaction with, um, with children. Like, cause I've got two children and they are, well, they've kind of cycled in and out of Minecraft. Like I thought they'd grown out of it, but now they've gone back into it. My eldest is 12, youngest is nine. So, um, I'm, my, daughter plays a little bit my elder son um comes in and out depending on whether his friends are playing but i think mm. that most of them have gone on moved on but like i have been writing professionally about minecraft you know i wrote i've written a couple of books about minecraft official ones and um that's been really interesting to do alongside the children and they've sort of had these books that have got minecraft things on them with their dad having written them and that's been a lovely thing has that really. made you a cool dad um well <laughs> Kind of. So My children are cut weird in, the, <laughs> in that they, they just sort of seem to accept it as like normality. Mm. But I, I don't, th- you know, they, they invite their friends around and their friends hear what I do for a living and they all kind of, they kind of can't quite believe it sort of thing. But I, my kids just sort of accept it as just reality. But, um, but I think it did hurt home. I did a, so after the publication of one of the books is called M- Minecraft Bocopedia, which is this hexagonal shaped book. That covers all the books in the box in the game. And are there any hexagons in Minecraft? No. The spider webs are hexagonal shape mm. icon. I'm just asking why the <laughs> book was a hexagon. Um, uh, I, I did some talks, mm. um, at, at literary events, um, and children's events. And, um, and one of them up in Chester, um, the kids came to and they were down the front. And insisted on asking questions, <laughs> which is really terrifying because, you know, all the kids know more about Minecraft than I do. And like, you know, and I was just terif- terrified, but mostly the kids just wanted to tell me about what they did in Minecraft. Aww. So none of them are really questions. They're all sort of like just statements. About so you're like, saying that the children were all new games journalists. They were all new games journalists. <laughs> and they've all played way more than, than that guy on the stage. <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, Minecraft. 
as a phenomenon that relationship between kind of older players who came to Minecraft because it's an interesting game and like I keep getting reminded that it's actually a very good game as well mm. um uh and that bridge with kids who have kind of grown up with it as this kind of sort of a constant especially mm. for my kids is um it's really interesting yeah that's interesting you can both share in and because it's so open and you can get what you want from it I guess it's also like a a confluence of like this new toy form emerging at the same time as a way of communicating about entertainment that didn't really exist prior to this. Yeah. Right. Like gaming YouTube as a concept is inextricably linked to Minecraft. Mm -hmm. Um, Like this couldn't have happened with Lego because the toy itself can be a phenomenon but there isn't the kind of storytelling apparatus around it to make phenomena out of the people yeah. who are just simply using it, right? Yeah. It's kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. And yeah, there's sort of cultures within cultures, like the culture of Minecraft that I know is quite different to the one that my kids inhabit. You know, there's is the Dan TDM and kind of stampy sort of culture, mm. which is like something I don't really interface with. It's very I think as like a, rich. Like a, sorry baseline experience for for kids like my experience first experience of the games were with challenge oriented 2d platformers stuff like mario stuff like zool and stuff like that mm. there's golden axe that kind of thing um where you're not expressing yourself you're beating challenges where it feels like a lot of kids first introduction to games now is about this expressive space where you can build things and actually it could be super social mm. uh, and it seems like such a, a much more positive starting point almost than perhaps we had maybe i think one thing i really appreciate like because my um, my start with games when I was very young was, yeah, like, so a lot of, like, Amiga and sort of 286 platformers and things like that. So, sure. Thomas. Yep. Uh, Felix the Cat. Um, but also point and click adventure games. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that was definitely like, you know, um, in terms of like playing with other people, having mm. like a social experience of games. My first, my two first earliest shared experiences of games, one was Sonic the Hedgehog, so definitely in that thing, but the other were Monkey Island. Yeah. Like playing through all the Monkey Island games with my sister and my friend who lived down the road. And those were the games you'd go to each other's houses to play and play through and talk about at school. And that was definitely like an exposure to a lot of like pretty funny writing early. I don't want to like credit that in any particular interest because I was already a kid who liked books. So whether, whether the chicken and the egg is in that, I don't know, but it was definitely like my first experience of games was very like heavy on kind of like crafted experiences and writing and, mm. and, and that kind of thing. And that has probably shaped some elements of my taste to this day, to some extent. Um, whereas um, I suppose that's like, concern well not concerned but that's that's maybe what you miss if your first experience of games is these sort of like authorless experiences i don't know i don't think you're missing something necessarily but it's certainly a different way into what the medium can do mm. right like yeah I think, I think they have a different expectation of games they mm. expect games not to finish and mm. they kind of you know they expect them to be developed, you know, they mm. expect them to change over the course of, you know, as they play them, they, you know, but then again, like my son is very happy to play something like Super Meat Boy, which is, you know, like channels mm. Zool to an extent. Mm. 
Y- yeah. <laughs> to an extent. Nothing's ever fully channeled Zool. I know. Because you just, it's the greatest untapped, uh, series in gaming. It is, yeah. I was so young when I first played Zool. Because I, I, I would definitely like Amigos, like Amiga 1200 was my first color computer. Yeah. And like, and that, so that was probably my first experience of a color game, particularly a fast moving mm-hmm. game. And like, I think I internalized early that it was completely normal for everything to take place in the chubba chubba dimension. <laughs> like the concept that that was product placement, which yes. it clearly is. And now it you probably wouldn't even tolerate that sure. egregious, <laughs> egregious product placement. Yeah. Sort of. It was cool dots, cool spot as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, I re- uh, don't what you remember? Like, no, no, the, Sprite, Sprite. There's Zool, Zool 2, and it, uh, as well as, the man's all it had the the ladies the ladies all but also in between levels you got to play breakout as a dog with two heads <laughs> yeah <laughs> watch backwards and forwards breaking i remember rocks. vividly like early we're, <laughs> talking, we're talking walking. like early tactile memories here do you have the same vivid memory of the uh zool code wheel oh i do very yeah. much. that was almost that was better than the game let's yeah be exactly honest. like uh, yeah i definitely have like a lot of formative memories of games being like these arcane things you had to kind of summon out of a box yeah. it was actually it is quite like a, 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 some sort of ritual that you're doing as you're you know turning the, the code wheel to the yeah exactly to kind of make it work and then mm. and then the disc will just fail to boot and you have to do it again because you haven't summoned the demons in the correct manner you know, yeah yeah the correct respect there was definitely like a handover point between me and my dad where like around the time it was around the, the it happened over the course of uh, the time we had Amiga 1200 and then at some point, presumably after 1995, we had a PC with Windows 95 and, <laughs> and that was the point where like I understood the software better than he did. Mm. And I think that was like a real epochal shift in like, <laughs> I can, I can make the games install and run, uh, because it's like code wheels and like mad <laughs> floppy disc installations swapping. and disc yeah. swapping and things. Um, yeah, man, that's funny. Like that, that tactile experience of games, I suppose, is the interesting thing. Interesting to think about its absence, right? Like that assumption that games. I think it's transferred onto touchscreens, doesn't it? It's transferred yeah. onto the um, stuff like the Switch has. A, it, the Switch's controllers are really sensitive to the motions if you're playing like the Mario. Mm. Really, um, that that feels like what it is now. Like it's not a bit of paper and a card that you turn and Although, rip. In literally, though, they have just reinvented yeah. card. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> they have done that. Yes. Um, yeah, man, that's. I suppose that's a little bit off topic because it's more about like experiences of games as children, but like, just like, just a, just a quick aside on that is, um, spoke to Bennett Foddy, um, who's just put out getting over it. Mm. Um, another kind of painful game to play. Um, it's actually fun though. Like it's good, but he, he, um, we were talking about how he designs frustration and he very specifically places his interest in making frustrating games in his experiences as an Australian. Uh, I think he's about the same age as me. So he grew up in the eighties um, and in Australia and like the being an Australian game fan was uniquely frustrating because um, you only had like, you had European style computers. So like Amstrad's and, uh, BBCs and um, Spectrums. All the games got there months late because they'd be imported by by mm. by boats and they'd be really expensive. And um, then you have just the standard frustrations with tape and the fact that you know they would not load or just take ages to load or whatever. Mm. So 
he just relates games to this sort of inherently frustrating experience of waiting and kind of like persevering with one game because it was the only one he could afford and the only one was out and you know that kind of thing you know was available mm. um and and so kind of he's interested in like when you've only got one game to play like how frustrating can you make a game like Jet Set Willy where, where you kind of if you die it's back to the start sort of thing so it's, now he wants everyone else in the world yeah. to experience this <laughs> yeah. frustration be an Australian <laughs> there's, um, no, the game. there's no, mentioned no. on the pod before he's mentioned on the pod that um, Tom F recorded at Indiecade uh, with Zach and Kevin from Asymmetric yeah. um, but um uh, I've forgotten his surname, Stephen, who's the Catamites, um, oh, yeah. uh, did a really interesting talk about indicated about his experience of kind of encountering games as sort of imported foreign objects um, growing up in Ireland, which is kind of a similar mm. kind of story in that yeah. how that shaped his kind of like, you know, um, his early response to games, like assuming that things like Mario were the tie-in games for cartoons that they just didn't get. And that kind of thing, right. arranging like arriving as completely foreign cultural objects is kind of interesting <laughs> as well. Um, I might stick that in the show notes, but either way, it's talked about in the episode from a couple of months ago, so worth a look. Awesome. Um, yeah, I suppose we've managed to talk around how games have shaped our lives, but it's, yeah, it's like I mean, literally, we're sat here on a Wednesday evening talking about games, talking about video games, having written about games during the day. Having yes, yeah, exactly. And we write about games in the morning. Yeah, and playing the games recently. No. <laughs> um, our second uh, question uh, for this week comes from Kane, mentioned earlier, um, who writes, "Hello, crates of Thebes." Having recently played Subnautica, I had a thought about difficulty settings in games. I think developers might be assuming too much rationality on the part of players, and as a result, missing out on interesting ways to do easy modes. Like many survival games, Subnautica has hunger and thirst meters that have to be kept filled. If you get too hungry or thirsty, the meter starts flashing red, and then eventually you start taking increasingly severe damage until you either die or eat and drink something. There's a game mode that simply disables these meters altogether, but what if instead you had a mode that disables the damage the player takes from hunger or thirst? I feel like personally I'd still feel compelled to gather food and water and refill those meters when they started blinking red. I'd still feel the same engagement with survivalist fantasy. The fact that there's no explicit punishment for not doing so wouldn't really change that. It's just I wouldn't lose progress if I failed. Compared to some old school games which had god modes where you still get, you still take damage, you just don't die when you reach zero health. You still get the feedback of being shot, the pain sounds and the flashing. It's just that your game won't end. Separating feedback from punishment could produce an easy mode that still makes people feel the same way about normal mode does without actually causing them to lose game progress for their mistakes. I feel it might be better than eliminating both punishment and feedback or coming up with baroque new forms of punishment that are less severe. Thoughts? Question mark. Kane. P.S. All that being said, I do feel that like hunger and thirst are boring systems for a survival game and Subnautica specifically would be better served by expanding the oxygen and power mechanics as a way of limiting the player's exploration range and requiring them to prepare for long journeys. But that's a discussion for another time. <gasps> and another go on my oxygen meter, which is <laughs> flashing red. <laughs> like, um... So I think, so actually I kind of agree that, um, hunger and thirst are, so in the break, we had an, a discussion about, um, Monster Hunter's apparently amazing sounding food system, which I don't want to reiterate too much, but I feel like eating and drinking as concept in games are successful when they are positive things that give you a boost for doing it and annoying when they are things that punish you for not doing it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Even though the presence of an essential boost for making sure you eat before going off on an adventure is functionally a way of punishing for you not eating. I would rather see like an eating system in Subnautica where you ate and that 
extended your swim speed or something you know what i mean like yeah. something like that yeah there's in i think the intention with monster hunter is to create a set of preset like a pre-hunt ritual where you go around all the vendors and cash in your stuff then you select a hunt and then you go eat a meal and then you head off and it's like a, a kind of hunter's lifestyle that is is trying to sort of put, you're also, put you into. You're also choosing specific kinds of buffs. That's true. So it's a systemic kind of. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm. you, you're also getting. But it's yeah, it is the it's a ritual thing, and yeah. the, the animation is so good that you can't it, do it. You gotta, yeah, it's always fun to watch. And I completely agree with Kane that the idea of like smaller health bars that then become affect your bigger health bar is like a, a totally weak and an annoyance. I, I've definitely found in like the long dark and other games where. Yeah, I didn't feel desperation to that annoyance. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, I I like the efficient setup I have built for myself in Subnautica for solving this problem. Mm. But I agree that it's not the most world's most interesting problem. I don't agree that having the easy mode where the bar doesn't do anything is the answer. I think redesigning the system is the answer. The reason I don't agree with the idea that having no penalty apart from a flashing bar is you're basically making the annoying UI mechanic and the slight hit to your OCD that's the punishment and in a way i find that more insidious like because it makes the ui um the game if that makes sense like it makes it makes the game about appeasing the ui which you don't want to turn red and flash at you even if it won't punish you in any you other may way as well just make it into a kind of a tour mode where you know exactly which is kind of what it becomes in the mode that they've got which is what yeah. you kind of want i would rather have um i mean so i'd rather a disable the mechanical also which is what it said um, I think having, um, the mode where, you know, eating and drinking doesn't kill you, but you're much faster and maybe more survivable. You know, you get like damage mitigation or something if you've eaten that kind of thing. What are, what are the mechanics by which it kind of just reduces rate your range and like reduces so the in Subnautica, that, 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 yeah. In yeah. Subnautica food is one of them. So you want to, you know, when you get the big sub and you can go on those big expeditions, the big sub has shit loads of storage space in it, loads of different lockers. And one of the things that makes sense to use that for is to give one locker over to, um, food rations, which you probably grow yourself, uh, water bottles, um, and batteries like rechargeable batteries so you can recharge your batteries back at base and like build yourself up a little stock of fully recharged batteries and power cells for your vehicles including the main sub and so there's some satisfaction like there's a satisfying like you can make the game difficult for yourself by not doing that stuff but if you put the time in to prep for a journey then you become more capable of solving problems that occur during the journey so uh, you, your one of your important tools runs out of batteries. Maybe that's just a trip back to the big sub rather than aborting the entire expedition, right? Like that stuff, I find gratifying, and it, it measures and it's weighed against all sorts of other concerns, like your inventory space. Keeping your spare batteries on your person might make sense, but it might mean you run out of space for the stuff you're finding at the bottom of the cave you're exploring. It might make more sense to keep your spare batteries either in your vehicle or in the big sub that you're using as your. So it's kind of interesting choices. Yeah, you're making choices about how yeah. you're investing your resources. Yeah. And the purpose of the hunger and thirst meter in that context is that, um, so oxygen is actually, it's quite generous with oxygen and power, re- like, so I think if I was to defend the system, I'd say this, oxygen is a lethal threat if you run out of it. And it is always on your mind. Like when you're out of your, in your when you're in a vehicle, you have infinite oxygen, Obviously, you can get to the surface, you have infinite oxygen, but towards the latter part of the game, you're going down a kilometer. You're going down to depths and in cave systems, and it's quite claustrophobic. And so, and you can upgrade it to the point where, and also your oxygen drains faster the deeper you go. 
So when you're really deep, you only get like, you know, really a comfortable 30 seconds outside of your vehicle before you're going back. So your vehicle becomes like your little base away from, you know what I mean? You're constantly returning to it. It's constantly on your mind. And that's good. That creates pressure. It means that if you get cornered by something nasty and you're hiding in a cave, Mm. you have to deal with the fact that you're going to drown if you don't Mm. make a break for your oxygen source or something like that. That's all good. I think it needs to be about the speed it's at. The drain rate of your power, which is batteries that power your tools and then the power cells that power your vehicles, uh, they drain much slower. And I think if they drained faster than they do, they would become very frustrating because um, as soon as you run out of power, you can't do stuff. You can't weld open, you know, uh, slice open locked doors or repair things or shine your torch or use your sonar and all that stuff. Um, and you can mitigate it about that against that by carrying spares. And so those two systems, I think are quite finely balanced. Hunger and thirst become a thing that kicks in. It's the, it's the thing you forget about, right? Like, um, you've probably got like 10, 15 minutes of playtime before you really need to think about doing something about it. Mm. And you can prep for that. I kind of agree that it's, it feels like, it feels like there are other more critical limiting mechanics that are providing choices already. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Although I don't think it's, meaningless within the system i think it's more that like maybe the punishment should be more interesting than just killing you like i think also that's partly the thing like in terms of how you know how players understand these systems in survival games everyone understands that if you run out of oxygen and you're a kilometer beneath the surface of the sea you're gonna die yeah thematically you kind of yeah your batteries run out your torch doesn't work you get eaten Mm. that that makes sense no one is just like oh i'm a bit hungry oh no i've starved to death like like that right like Food in games, this may be the bigger problem with it, is that as a system, it rarely works like actual food, mm. you know, positive or negative, right? Like diet is something that I'd be interested. I, I don't know if I could think of a survival game that simulates diet over the course of a long time, right? There's the, a, in yeah. Minecraft, you've, in Minecraft, you've got this little, you can't eat too much of one kind of food because it just becomes less and less effective. Mm. So there's that. Um, there, yeah. There, there are also like, uh, a lot of games that simulate the effects of diet that even though food itself isn't an essential thing so if you eat right. loads of burgers in san andreas yes. i believe yeah. you get you're gonna get that right. I, I think fable might have had a system like that but i can't remember uh so occasionally it's been like an aesthetic thing where you could choose your diet and you know yeah your, your body i think it'd be, it'd be an interesting way of like i, I maybe a more interesting like someone also has a day night system right mm. maybe I don't know if it's already timed this way, but, you know, probably don't start starving to death until, you know, you get uncomfortable after a day has passed and you get start starving to death after two days, maybe three days. But it, over the course of, like, weeks of the game, which you will which will pass, you know, like, I've spent most of my subnautica, I found a, a particular tree I can grow on my underground base, and it gives you a decent amount of water and a decent amount of nutrients per bite. So I just eat that. I've so, been eating the same tree for the last weeks hmm. and weeks and weeks of my character's life. So really, I should have hella scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll just be really tired of this meal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should um, be sad and cause it's quite, cause do the, terrible Because the Minecraft's kind of hunger system was something that kind of is, is – I can't remember when it – like it was introduced kind of latterly, like mm. quite a long time ago now, but but like into way into development. But – it seems to be there mostly to justify a lot of extra blocks, you know, like once you have farming materials, like because 
you want to make a farm, you want to grow stuff. Why, you know, like that, that's a cool thing to do, but then you've got to give something to do with all your potatoes and your wheat and stuff. Like, so you make food and therefore you then, you know, then you've, but it feels like it's finding a purpose for things. And like, it is annoying to need food while you're yeah. down at the bottom of mine. That is genuinely annoying. Like it's annoying to have to manage that aspect of it when you're trying to like explore a cave system or, or make a large building or something because like you've got to go back to base to get some mm. chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Or go out on a hunting party just because you haven't got any food. This is the entire pitch for Soylent, right? Yeah. <laughs> like. It was supposed to be a quality don't have of life. To worry in- anymore. A quality, quality of, of life, life improvement to life's UI. <laughs> exactly, but the the dark twist is it gives you. But it sounds like shits. it sounds like the partly the subnautica hunger system is to justify the need to grow. Yeah, to have stuff. Yes, at base. it is to give you like a reason to you know one of the kind of like not totally late game, but definitely like mid to late game things you can build. There's like a water filtration system for your base, so your base will just start outputting fresh water and salt. Yeah. as resources that you will then be able to farm and you can use that salt to cure fish and keep cured meat on you and you know you can so that solving that problem is super satisfying right like it's you go from the pre having that system in place game to the post having that system in place game and you have materially improved something about your character situation in a way that feels satisfying to solve mm. um like that's that works. I kind of like that. I, I still think that kind of system is better served by a positive buff rather than a, a yeah. big negative or even like a balance between the two. So that like, if you've eaten and you're refreshed, then you can't swim fast, but you get a bu- You feel great. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't, don't eat, don't swim after eating. That's yeah. maybe a big <laughs> part of it. Yeah. yeah. Like I regularly <laughs> eat like an knows. entire tree and go for a swim and somehow I haven't died. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're sub produced, like it just have it was full of nutrient blocks, just a tiny, like it's said to be to cube nutrient blocks that basically do the job of sustaining your body, but then you could grow or farm the things that made you faster at swimming or. Yeah. What's interesting is like the game does do some, some, there's obviously some, thought has gone into this because nutrient blocks are something you can find but as far as i can tell not make mm, so right. um, when you're looting the big spaceship what done crashed that you escaped from some of the things you find in there are nutrient blocks that give you huge boosts to your food and keep forever but uh, and don't take up very much inventory space but you can only ever find them in the wreck so when you do find them, they're quite precious because, yeah. you, you know, you kind of want to subsist off plant life and fish and things when you when you have the option. But keeping a few of those on you for emergencies is super gratifying and an interesting use of a very limited resource. Yeah. So there's, there's an argument both ways, I think, for, for that system. Hmm. I think, yeah, the bottom line of it for me is I think I'd rather see like a scaling system. I'd rather see like, oh, you're full. Um, maybe you're... F- when you're full, no bonus. When you're like 80% full, so you're at that interesting kind of ideal point, you're 20% faster. Then it goes back to normal. And then when you're at 10% hunger and lower, you become slower. And that's it. You're just slower. You don't die. You're just slower. That would, I think, find a balance between what Kane's suggesting, which is the completely um, superficial system and what it currently does, which is like, oh, and you just died. Didn't Mel Gear maybe two? If you didn't eat, your tummy would growl, and you could have like, <laughs> spoil your stealth. I think that was in Mel Gear. It sounds like an MGS two thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Sounds like the sort of thing that would be that would be in those games. 
Yeah, if you only yeah maybe maybe have that system for Subnautica. If you only eat like the one kind of plant, you fart a lot, and then, and then you, the like, monsters come. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you might shit yourself and fill up your soup. Oh god, oh, no. the worst death. <laughs> <laughs> I shat my prawn suit. <laughs> That should be the hardcore mode. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the true Iron Man. Ultimate Iron Man. Man. <laughs> He's got a system for filtering that stuff. <laughs> it's not Iron Man mode if you haven't shut your prawn suit. <laughs> Bear Grylls Subnautica. There you go. If, you, if any developers of Subnautica... We've really solved this. <laughs> free design. Well, I mean, point. this is the thing, right? Like, games simulate such selective parts of the human experience. Yeah. Eating, drinking, yes. Drowning, also. Eaten by... <laughs> Mega fish, definitely shitting, shitting yourself. yourself. Yeah, no. rarely, rarely. <laughs> Getting bored of meals yeah, and exactly. shitting yourself. To <laughs> things that I genuinely worry about every day. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I know. Well, you, you've also established you're worried about getting by sharks in the bath, Alex. So That's true. There's an element. Of my, my, yeah, my my, my preoccupation is probably not <laughs> worth. It's the, it's the version of Subnautica where the thing looms out of the distance and you do shit yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but you're the sole survivor of that ship so there's no shame no one will know, <laughs> no one will know. No. the fish are watching yeah. there's a system I think it might be related to an end game thing but like occasionally you'll find um, time capsules which I think are left by other players who have finished the game so they can leave equipment and a photo for another player and um, there's definitely the the dark version of this <laughs> just a shitty time capsule <laughs> a photo of a very there's nowhere else to person. go just a floating turd yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my only option there's a good reason we only answered two questions this episode yeah. <laughs> I think that comprehensively dealt with uh, Kane's question yes basically um, <laughs> keep the hunger and food system add shitting yourself yeah. sorted yeah what's what it's missing is shitting <laughs> Shitting, it's what's missing. Alex's GDC talk. This is a message <laughs> sent to you by the shit marketing board. <laughs> There's a joke there, but it's too late. Um, so, <laughs> if you... <laughs> If you'd like to send us an episode, a question. An episode. Send us an episode. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Pampers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Anyone exactly. You've, cra- you've crafted a nappy. <laughs> <laughs> Swimming nappy. <laughs> what are we talking about? If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the Crate and Crowbar, um, please do email us at questions at com. This episode's questions might not be a perfect example of this, but I did want to reiterate that we are on the whole more likely to read out shorter questions. Uh, we do get sent a lot of uh, long ones, which are super interesting to read, but unless there's a question in there that we can bounce off and often end up in a digression about shit then <laughs> then you know we, we might not read that just saying that for me, if you're thinking about writing in then that's a helpful thing basically uh if you would like to hang out with our community you can do so on discord find the link for our discord channel on the website creatingcrowbar.com we're also on youtube at youtube.com forward slash creatingcrowbar where you find the episodes of our various pods and our Bloodborne playthrough, which is on a momentary hiatus uh, as we negotiate a series of uh, very busy weeks. Because um, I've got some projects on, um, which will take me out of the country for a bit. 
and uh tom you've got the pc gamer weekend coming up absolutely if you want to come to london olympia uh well i think it's the 17th 18th uh of February, sounds about right which is next weekend oh like. can i plug something as well yeah on monday the 12th uh of february i am chairing a talk about early british video game developers huh. uh in london on carnaby street um, just on the street or just in the road <laughs> with uh, martin hollis who done goldeneye uh gary penn who wrote for uh, various video game magazines in the 80s and uh, uh dan malone who was one of the artists for the bitmap brothers oh awesome. um, that's awesome and uh, and 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 another mm. we're just um confirming that that's on so if you look at my twitter which we'll get to in a minute to, get to in a minute There'll be details there, but it's also being chaired by Read Only Memory, the publisher Read Only Memory, so you can look up there. Awesome. Oh, we're all doing things. It's nice. Yeah. If you would like to uh, follow Crate and Crowbar on Twitter, you can find us at Crate and Crowbar. Uh, and as ever, this podcast and all of its various spin-offs are supported by the Crate and Crowbar Patreon. Uh, thank you very much to our backers, and you'll find out more information about that at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. All that remains is to reveal Alex's Twitter handle, which is... At Rotational, which is R-O-T-A-T-I-O-N-A-L. And Tom Senior's Twitter handle, which is... At PCG Ludo, L-U-D-O. And I'm at C Thurston, which is C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, everybody. everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.